This is Commission President Sam Cho convening the special meeting of July 11th, 2023. The time is 10.04 a.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle Headquarters Building Commission Chambers, as well as virtually via Microsoft Teams. Present with me today are Commissioners Calkins, Feldman, Hazakawa, and Mohammed, who are currently gathered in the executive session room awaiting the opening of the public meeting. We'll now recess into executive session to discuss four items regarding litigation and or potential litigation or legal risk per RCW 42.30.110 sub 1 sub I for approximately 90 minutes. And we'll reconvene into session at 12 p.m. noon. Thank you so much. This is Commission President Sam Cho convening this special meeting of July 11th, 2023. The time is 12.06 p.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle Headquarters Building, Commission Chambers. Clerk Hart, please call the roll of all commissioners in attendance. Thank you, Mr. Commission President. Beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Here. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Present. Thank you. And Commissioner Mohammed. Present. Thank you. We do have a full quorum here today. Excellent. Good to see the dice full today. A few housekeeping items before we begin. For everyone in the meeting room, please turn your cell phones to silent. For everyone participating on Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you are a member of the commission or executive director participating virtually or are a member of staff in a presentation and are actively addressing the commission. Members of the public addressing the commission during public comment may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak and will turn them back off again at the conclusion of their remarks. For anyone at the dais here today, please turn off the speakers on any computers and silence your devices. Please also remember to address your request to be recognized to speak through the chair and to wait to speak until you have been recognized. You'll turn your microphones on and off as needed. All the items noted here will ensure, ensure a smoother meeting, so I thank you in advance. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method, so it is clear for anyone participating virtually how votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people with whom we share a commitment to the steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please now stand or join us for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, the first item of business today is approval of the agenda. As a reminder, if a commissioner wishes to comment for or against an item on the consent agenda, it is not necessary to pull the item from the consent agenda. A commissioner may offer supporting or opposing comments once the motion to approve the consent agenda is on the floor and before the vote. However, if a commissioner wants to take, uh, ask questions of staff or wishes to have a dialogue on a consent item, uh, agenda item, it is appropriate to request the item be pulled for separate discussion. Are there any items to be pulled from the consent agenda or motions to rearrange the orders of the day? Yeah, yeah. Commissioner Phil. I, I, I don't want to pull it, but I was wondering if there was anybody that could speak to the new member of the public on the Portwide Arts and Culture Board. I didn't give forewarning, so my apologies if there's not somebody here that could address that. 
Through the Commission President to Commissioner Fellman, I believe Tommy Gregory will be on the line at some point. I'm not sure if he's here at this time. Um, do we want to have this discussion now or at the time of the consent agenda? Uh, is Tommy on? Okay, can someone find him? And then we'll, we'll talk about it at the when, when we're considering for consent. Thank you. All right, so uh, the question is now approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve as presented? So moved. Second. Excellent. The motion has been made and seconded. Is there any objection to the approval of the agenda as presented? Hearing none, the agenda is approved as presented. Thank you all. We don't have any special orders uh, scheduled for today, so we'll go on to the next uh, part of the agenda, which is uh, the executive director's report. Executive Director McCurrick, you have the floor. Commissioners, good afternoon. This is our first meeting of July in the beginning of the third quarter of the year. For us at the Port of Seattle, this means that we are fully in the heart of the busy summer travel season. We are seeing <clears throat> passengers boarding cruise ships in record numbers, and we expect to hit the most passengers ever in a single day at Se Seattle-Tacoma International Airport history at some point in the near future. We thought it was going to be a few weekends ago, but uh, we know it'll come sometime this year. July is also the heart of the planning for the 2024 budget season as well. I want to thank commissioners for your participation in a very, uh, very informative budget retreat two weeks ago, and I appreciate all of your questions and thoughts about our current and future financials. Thank you again to the port staff who helped make this happen. As I said in the retreat, we are pleased that most of our business lines have recovered from the pandemic. However, we are still facing significant uncertainties as we begin to prepare for the 2024 budget. I've issued my budget guidance to the staff and directed a cautious, strategic, and balanced approach to advancing our core operations and our capital improvement plan while making continued investment in sustainability, equity, and community programs. I look forward to sharing more background about our approach and the steps ahead at our next commission budget retreat at the end of this month. Uh, before we proceed with today's agenda, I'd like to share two highlights since our last meeting. First, at the end of last month, I was pleased to be joined by Commissioners Fellman, Hasegawa, and Calkins at the signing of the Memor Memorandum of Agreement with the Muckleshoot Indian Tribal Government. This historic document expands our government-to-government -government relationship and creates opportunities to collaborate on areas of shared interest. I appreciate your leadership and the work of the port staff who helped create this important structure to ensure the long-term interests of both the port and the tribe. I look forward to near-term opportunities to implement the agreement through our work plan which is being developed, particularly in areas like workforce development. Second, I'd like to share some details of my recent travel. Last week, Commission President Cho and I had the opportunity to travel to London for the United Nations International Maritime Organization's 80th meeting of its Environmental Protection Committee, also known as the MEPC. Two weeks ago, this meeting, attended by member states and international organizations, was important since 3% of greenhouse gas emissions come from mar the maritime industry. And while we can take actions like providing shore power to help ships reduce greenhouse gas gases and other emissions when the ships are in port, there must be global efforts to achieve reductions in a global maritime industry. Senior Director of Environment and Sustainability, San Sandra Kilroy, was at the intersessional working group meetings to help lay the groundwork the week before. There are many details of the outcome, but I'm pleased to share that the MEPC made progress by agreeing to a goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions 
from maritime vessels by approximately 2050, and there's some detail in that. Emissions will be calculated using the comprehensive well-to-wake life cycle analysis that captures emissions from the production of fuel as well as the burning of fuel. While not as ambitious as we would have liked to see, this compromise gives the maritime industry the necessary signals to catalyze their investments in zero and near-zero emission fuels. The Port of Seattle is committed to being the greenest port in North America, and our participation in influencing IMO policy is a key strategy for achieving our port-specific climate goals and impacts globally. I look forward to continuing the momentum, particularly as we begin to implement our green corridor efforts. Moving to today's commission meeting, I'd like to highlight a few items. On the consent agenda today, I'd like to highlight the monthly executive delegations report out. This is the second summer report we have generated under the new delegation, and I'm happy to report we approved 15 items for the month of June. Items included federal government advocacy services, software requests, survey capacity, conference room enhancements, and more of those, of those 15. Also on our consent agenda are items that increase Wi-Fi capacity at SEA, which is one of our major customer experience priorities, as well as uh, an authorization that replenishes contingency funds for an important upgrades to the Harbor Island Marina. I'm also looking to forward to sharing more about both the land stewardship order and the equity spending and accountability project later in the meeting. Commissioners, this concludes my report. Excellent. Thank you for that report, Executive Director. We are now on to committee reports. Erica Chung, Commission Strategic Advisor, will provide the report. Erica. Great. Good afternoon, President Cho, Commissioners, and Executive Director Metric. I have two reports for you today. Start SCA Stakeholder Advisory Roundtable met on Wednesday, June 28th, with Sarah Cox, Director of Aviation Environmental Programs, chairing the meeting in lieu of Lance Little, who was unavailable. Two topics were the primary focus of the meeting. The first is Warren Hendrick, Chair of the Commercial Aviation Coordinating Commission, also known as CACC, which concluded its work on June 30, 2023, shared uh, what factors ultimately led to the change in the CACC's charge and the results of the concluding CACC membership survey that, among other results, stated that members believed a yet-to-be-determined greenfield site is the only way to meet the Puget Sound's impending air travel capacity demand. Also at the meeting, Eric Shinfield, Federal Government Relations Manager at the port, provided a recap of the START membership successful trip to D.C. in late April, START's planned joint letter of response to the FAA's noise policy review process, and the latest on the FAA reauthorization legislation. Four of Port City's seven identified noise and emission policy priorities are currently in the House and Senate authorization bill and the port will continue to urge timely passage of the legislation. Commissioners Mohammed convened the June Audit Committee meeting with Commissioner Cho and public member Sarah Holstrom on June 30, 2023. Committee reviewed an audit report from Moss Adams for the 2022 financial statement audit, re audit results. This was a clean audit and Moss Adams recognized port staff for their successful implementation of new accounting requirements for GASB 87 leases. The committee also received an update on open issues, received an update on the status of the 2023 audit plan, and heard reports for audits regarding port-wide payroll controls, social and environmental reporting, the T117 sites 23 to 25 restoration construction project, and Doug Fox, uh, Doug Fox parking. The next audit committee will be held in September. 
This concludes my report. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Thank you, Erica, for that report. Uh, any questions for either Erica or Executive Director Metric from the commissions? All right. Thank you both. All right. Um, we're actually going to move on to public comment, and then uh, we'll see. look. I see Tommy's here, so we'll we'll ask him what questions we want to ask him during the consent agenda. We are now at the public comment section of our agenda. The Port of Commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the Commission in its deliberations. Before we take public comment, we're going to review our rules for in-person and virtual comment. We're going to do things a little bit different and innovatively. We always like to improve things. So, Clerk Hart, play the recording. Give us just a minute here. Do you need me to pull it up, Aubrey? Okay, hang on. We are having some technical difficulties in the room today. Bear with me here. This is what I get for trying to save my breath. <laughs> it's not you. Truly, it is the room today. Okay, let me see if I can... Share this with sound. Port of Seattle Commission welcomes you to our meeting today. As noted, public comment is an important part of the public process, and the Port of Seattle Commission thanks you for joining us. The Commission accepts in-person, virtual, and written public comment regarding matters related to the conduct of port business. Before we proceed, here are the Commission's public comment rules of procedure for your information. Each commenter will have two minutes to speak and should stay within the allotted time. A timer will appear on the screen and a buzzer will sound at the end of the two-minute period for each speaker. The Commission reserves the right to receive comments specifically related to the conduct of court business. If comments are not related to the conduct of court business, the presiding officer will stop the speaker and ask that comments be kept to matters related to the conduct of port business. This rule applies to both introductory and concluding remarks. All remarks should be addressed to the commission as a body and not to individual commissioners. Disruptions of commission public meetings are prohibited. Disruptions include, but are not limited to the following. Refusal of a speaker to limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of port business. Threats and abusive or harassing behavior and language. Obscene language and gestures. Refusal of a speaker to comply with the allotted time set for the individual speaker's public comment. Leaving the podium or testimony table to physically approach commissioners or staff during one's public comment provided speakers may offer written materials to the commission clerk, and any behavior that disrupts, disturbs, or otherwise impedes the meeting. Any disruption will result in a speaker's microphone being immediately shut off by the presiding officer and a warning or loss of speaking privileges or removal from the meeting room may occur as provided in the commission's bylaws. Written materials provided to the clerk will be included in today's meeting record. The clerk has a list of those prepared to speak. 
We are taking comments from anyone who has signed up to speak virtually, as well as from anyone who has joined us today here in the meeting room. When your name is called, if you are joining virtually, please unmute yourself, then please repeat your name for the record and state your topic related to the conduct of court business. You may turn on your camera at this time. The two minute timer will then begin. If you're on the Teams meeting and at the same time streaming the meeting on the website, please mute the website stream to avoid feedback. When you have concluded your remarks, you may again turn off your camera and mute your speaker. If you are speaking from the meeting room, please come to the testimony table, repeat your name for the record, and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. Our public comment period will now commence. Thank you again for joining us today. I like that. I like your voice better than mine. Um, <laughs> all right, I love the minor improvements working. We're getting better. All right, our first speaker today is Alex Zimmerman. Alex, go ahead and speak, say your full name and the topic related to port business for the record, and then you and Alex, then we'll speak. let me get that timer up first for you, Alex. Hang on a minute. You ready, Alex? It's on. It's right there. totally confuse me because condition what is we have here pure violation of constitution in exactly a 14 amendment uh, equal protection we don't have here in council chamber and commissioner equal protection for people who in commissioner represent only 15 percentage of seattle this not equal protection plus this all represent only democratic democratic party or what is i call democratic mafia it don't have sense, you know what this means. How is this possible? Plus, they all very low classes. They don't have experience with business. I don't understand how kinds of people. You Alex, know, you need to keep your comments to the conduct of poor exactly, business. Exactly, this exactly. Stop interrupt me. You, you're supposed to be sick, man. You know what this means? You're doing this in every. You're not meeting. supposed to address commissioners directly. That's your exactly. second warning. I don't direct commission, and exactly, I speak 3,000 times. I speak right now every day. Don't give me this BS, please. I'm tired. You're so stupid. All right. All right, that's your third warning. I'm going to ask uh, Port PD to please escort you out of the room. Why I mean it's Port escort PD, the room? can you I please come in and escort? I talk about personal. I don't nothing talk about personal, never broken your rule ever for one second. Why are you stopping me speak about? Because you crook. They say... All right, we're moving on to the next speaker. Uh, actually, we're going to go online real quick. We're going to go back and forth. Uh, Stacy Oaks, can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, Stacy. Go ahead and state your full name and your topic uh, related to poor business, and then we'll start the clock. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Stacy Oaks, and I'm a member of Seattle Cruise Control. In light of Cruz's multiple well-documented harmful effects, we call upon the Port of Seattle to cap the number of 2024 season sailings and passengers at or below 2019 levels. 
reducing these numbers every year until the industry no longer pollutes the oceans and air and no longer emits climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. To do this, the Port of Seattle should quantify greenhouse gases emitted by cruise ships along the entire route from Seattle to Alaska. And to get the true picture of our local cruise sector, the greenhouse gases that result from the flights that passengers take to get to Seattle and home again must also be included. For transparency, these numbers should be made public annually. A recent article in Time Magazine called The World May Have Just Missed Its Chance to Seriously Tackle Shipping Emissions stated, near-term targets are essential to making sure the longer-term goals are actually achieved. They would also provide a clear market signal for international shipping companies to put more investment into green technologies and production and distribution infrastructure for zero emission fuels. So using 2024 as a baseline, we call on the port to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from crews in alignment with the schedule in the proposed Clean Shipping Act of 2023. 20% 20 by 2027, 45% by 2030, 80% by 2035, and 100% by 2040. If these reductions cannot be achieved through zero or low emissions fuels, then they must be achieved through a reduction in the number of sailings. We cannot wait decades for a voluntary corridor captained by the same industry poisoning our air and water. We cannot rely on goals that lack benchmarks or realistic ways to achieve actual reductions. We cannot focus on accounting tricks like net zero. We need to cap and annually reduce the number of cruise sailings in order to reach zero emissions and zero toxic discharges by 2040. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stacey. We're going to go back to in-person and ask Patrick McGee to come up to the podium. Hi, Patrick, if you could state your full name and the topic, and then we'll start the clock for you. Sure. My name's Patrick McKee, and I'm a member of Seattle Cruise Control. Uh, commissioners, executive director, staff. Last Tuesday was the 4th of July. It was the hottest day in Earth's recorded history, the hottest day in 120,000 years. When my infant grandson is your age, this might well have been the coolest summer of his life, and I'm sure this is as terrifying for you all as it is for me. The mission statement of the Port of Seattle directs you to promote economic opportunities and quality of life in the region by advancing trade, travel, commerce, and job creation in an equitable, accountable, and environmentally responsible manner. Yet over the past 20 plus years, the Port of Seattle has aggressively grown its non-essential Alaska cruise business in a manner that is none of these. Mega cruise ships pollute our waters, endanger our health, jeopardize our climate, overwhelm destination communities, and exploit onboard workers. Commissioners correctly point out that Seattle is by far the largest beneficiary of the Alaska cruise business in very real jobs and dollars. Our economy gets the provision spend, the fuel revenue, the onshore servicing jobs, the overnight tourist stays, a departure and return. But where's the accountability? The port and cruise industry refuse even to acknowledge, much less take responsibility for, all the externalized costs borne along the entirety of the Alaska route. Ships that sail out of Elliott Bay don't simply become someone else's problem once they've rounded the West Point Lighthouse or crossed into Canadian or international waters. The Pacific Northwest, our communities, our marine environment, our climate, our children's future is worse off for Alaska mega cruises. And it's worse off at 2023 cruise numbers than at 2019. But the port has the power to make a tremendous difference. Seattle Cruise Control has compiled a list of actions that would begin to align your cruise operations with your mission statement, and we'd welcome the opportunity to discuss these with any of you. 
I've asked the clerk to distribute paper copies of this list of actions to you. I've also emailed them to you and submitted them as a written statement. And they can be found on the homepage of Seattle Cruise Control's website. You can contact us at info at seattlecruisecontrol.org. Thank you very much. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Patrick. And I want to acknowledge that we did receive your uh, letter. Uh, next is Jordan Van Vost online. Jordan, I see you there. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Cho. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead and state your name and topic, and then we'll start the clock. Uh, my name is Jordan Van Vost. I speak today to call attention to the cruise ship elephant in the room. Global climate disasters are now an everyday occurrence. This is not only a climate crisis, but an extinction crisis. And with El Nino warming the oceans, things are likely to get much worse this summer and fall. It is going to keep getting hotter with deadly consequences for all. Each one of us is ultimately responsible for our own actions, but as commissioners, you have a special responsibility in that your words and decisions have a much larger impact. Here in Seattle, we're having a comfortable summer so far, not too hot yet, and only moderate smoke levels. It doesn't feel like there's an emergency, but if we analyze the situation rationally, we know our current emissions trajectory is unsustainable. Please listen to my colleagues at Seattle Cruise Control and carefully consider the points detailed on the website, seattlecruisecontrol.org. Regarding the urgent need to scale back and ultimately eliminate cruise tourism at the port, we don't have time for half measures and false solutions that only delay but do not prevent the dire ecological reckoning we are facing. It's not easy to face change and make difficult decisions. There is tremendous pressure to conform to traditional values and social agreements. A true leader acts courageously with moral integrity without mundane concerns for career or social reputation. Please rise to the occasion and be climate superheroes. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, our next speaker uh, in person is Iris Antman. Iris? Come on up. Um, good, uh, good afternoon. <clears throat> My name is Iris Antman, and um, I'm here to speak about the harms of cruise. <clears throat> Feeling a bit emotional. Before I um, mention my uh, written comments, I just wanted to read a couple of headlines from the New York Times this morning. Helicopter and boat rescues underway across a devastated Vermont. Rising heat underground is making the ground shift under Chicago. Scientists call it underground climate change. In the Southwest, a lagging monsoon season could mean lingering heat waves. <clears throat> we're, thank you, we're calling on the port of Seattle to be a truly green port, and not just the greenest port in North America, because that's too low a bar. Look around, the heat dome in the Southwest flooding in uh, New York and India, the hottest temperatures recorded on Earth around the globe. <clears throat> there are many harms of cruise, and I'm speaking specifically to the fuel it burns causing the climate change. Workers in the Middle East have to rise at 4 a.m. to get their work done, 
because working during the day can be life-threatening. One week ago, the air quality in Seattle was 166, too high for me to go outside safely because I have lung disease. It's so clear that the extreme weather events we see and hear about on a daily basis are, are tied <clears throat> to climate change due to global warming. Burning fossil fuels is the chief cause. I know this, you know this. Yet, yet the port continues business as usual by working to grow the business of Alaska cruises. People are cruising to see Alaska's glacier, glaciers while the, the particles and emissions from the ships are melting those glaciers. Doesn't this irony stop you in your tracks? It is time, past time, for the port to cap and reduce the number of sailings of mega cruise ships until and if the ships are powered with truly clean green energy. Please do the right thing while there's still time. You can begin the paradigm shift that needs to happen if your children and grandchildren are to have a reasonable future. Thank you. Thank you, Harris. Uh, and then our last speaker will be Peggy Prince. Hello, I'm Peggy Prince, and I'm here to join the voices of my colleagues from Seattle Cruise Control. Because you plan to make Seattle the greenest port in North America, we at Seattle Cruise Control are suggesting, requesting 10 actions that will help get you there in a meaningful time frame. That means implementing them within your current terms of office. Committing to these efforts will take courage and unity. Our community will be encouraging and supporting you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peggy. That concludes our sign-ups today. Is there anyone else present on the team's call or present in the room today who didn't sign up and wishes to address the commission? If so, please state and spell your name and state the topic related to the conduct of port business you wish to speak about for the record. Okay, uh, at this time, I'll ask the clerk, please give a synopsis of any written comments received. Good afternoon, Mr. Commission President, members of the Commission, Executive Director Metric. We have received two written comments prior to our meeting today. These have been both distributed to you in advance of the meeting and will become a part of the public record. Patrick McKee did submit written comments to support his spoken comments here today, as noted. And then our next comment comes from Noemi Maxwell, who writes in support of item number 10A, applauding the port for adopting principles to guide development of Port of Seattle's six environmental land stewardship efforts around trees, forest, and other habitat. She further speaks to the importance of prioritizing the preservation of existing mature trees, wherever feasible, over replacing them with new ones. And that concludes our written comments we've received today. Great, thank you so much. Hearing no further public testimony, we'll move on to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after the, the option of remaining consent agenda items. At this time, the, cha the chair will entertain a motion to approve consent agenda uh, items covering 8A, 8B, 8C, 8E, 8F, 8G, 8H, and 8I. The, can I get a motion? Give me a second. So moved. Second. Great. Uh, at this time, I'd like to take a second to recognize the appointment of a new member of the Art Board under the consent agenda. Upon, upon adoption of the motion and on behalf of the commission, I would want to uh, I want to welcome Tamar Benzikti as a public member of the Portwide Arts and Culture Board. Uh, Tamar is filling a vacancy created by the resignation of a previous member. 
um, and I want to thank him for coming forward to serve in this capacity. I also want to take a moment to invite uh, Tommy up to maybe speak to Tamar, his background and his credentials for this committee before we take the vote on the consent agenda. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Yeah, uh, my name is Tommy Gregory. I'm the senior manager and curator for the Port of Seattle's public art program, and uh, very happy to be uh, involved with this public art board to the degree that I am. Um, Tamar is a, uh, let me pull up my notes so I, I get it accurate, uh, and all of uh, her great credentials. Um, okay, sorry, let me get a little closer. Um, yeah, sorry about that. So. Um, Tamara is a mission-driven curator, cultural strategist, and coalition builder with expertise in public art and community engagement backed by 15 years of arts program management experience. Uh, personally, I could say a, a person whose reputation precedes them in the public art community, uh, nationally, especially locally. Um, Tamara's got experience working with Meta for many years, as well as with For Culture as a, um, a leader in public art management and, um, and curatorial studies. Uh, Tamar's background, uh, she received a bachelor's degree in art history and Jewish studies from the University of Washington and received her master's degree in Jewish art and visual culture from Columbia University and Jewish Theolo uh, Theological mm -hmm. Seminary in New York. Uh, so extremely uh, accomplished person and we're super happy to have them as a part of our new member, uh, a new member on our public art board. Excellent, thank you for that uh, uh, briefing. I guess you can call it. Um, very excited to have tomorrow on the art board. Commissioners, uh, please say aye or nay when your name is called for the approval of the consent agenda. Threw me off. I was kind of expecting some questions there. Okay. All right. Beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hoskawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you, and Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you, five ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent, thank you very much, the motion, the motion passes. All right, moving along here on the agenda, we have one, President. oh yeah. So this was the item that I was asking to and have both. So, so this seemed like you had already foresaw this. And I got I wanna, you, Fred. I wanna, <laughs> I wanna compliment you on foreseeing that because I didn't give you a heads up and thank you, Tommy, for availing yourself. The fact that you were here was not by accident, I guess. Uh, my pleasure, and thank you all for your support in, the, in this public art program. And I enjoy being a member of the Arts Board with Mr. Cho. Excellent. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you all. All right, moving on in the agenda. We have one new business item today. Clerk Hart, please read the item into the record, and Executive Director will, uh, Metric will introduce the item. Thank you. This is agenda item 10A, order number 2023-10, an order of the Port of Seattle Commission to adopt principles to guide development of the Port of Seattle's environmental land stewardship efforts around trees, forest, and other habitat. Commissioners, today's proposed order would adopt principles to guide the development of the port's environmental land stewardship efforts for trees, forests, and other habitat. The order builds on the port's existing regional and industry leadership on these topics by identifying five principles and four strategies for land stewardship across all port facilities and properties. I want to thank port staff for their ongoing leadership on land stewardship practices and we're pleased to be able to institutionalize those division specific practices into port wide policy. 
The order also provides direction for future decision making and ensures that environmental land stewardship activities will include an equity lens as well. So the presenters are uh, Aaron Pritchard, Chief of Staff, Commission Office, and Erica Chong, and I also see Chipper there too, which isn't listed on here. But uh, Erica Chong, Commission Office, Strategic Advisor, and Chipper, I don't know your last name. I forgot. Chipper Maney, Airport Ecologist. Very good. Uh, thank you, Executive Director. Uh, you know, really, I just wanted to thank the hard work that uh, Chipper and Erica have put in under the direction of Commissioner Hasegawa and Commissioner Fellman as part of the uh, SEAC, this, the uh, Environmental Committee. Uh, so I'll pass it right over to Erica to kick it off. Thanks, Erica. Great. Uh, good afternoon, President Cho, Commissioners, and Executive Director Metric. We're so excited to bring the Environmental Land Stewardship Principal Order for Action today. It is thanks to the leadership and vision of Commission Vice President Hasegawa and with great input from Commissioner Fellman that we are here before you, offering a comprehensive approach to managing ports' natural resource of trees, forests, and other habitats. Senior Director of Environmental and Sustainability, Sandy Kilroy, Director of Aviation Environmental, Sarah Cox, Director of Maritime Environmental, Sarah Ogier, and our resident ecologist, Chipper Manny, and uh, numerous environmental staff from Aviation and Maritime have worked very thoughtfully in crafting the principles with input from Commission Office, Office of Equity and Diversity Inclusion, and from several environmental organizations earlier this year. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, we're bringing forward the principles because the port develops and operates essential transportation infrastructure to effectively move people and goods. That means that the port may impact trees in the future, but it is important that we do so responsibly as outlined in the port's mission. We recognize trees, forests, and habitat incredibly important to the environment and provide tremendous benefits to the public and the environment. And the principles offer guidance for port staff in balancing the health of our community's natural resource management and equity in environmental justice with the efficiency of port operations. Next slide, please. The port has, uh, the order has two parts. The first part is a principle, which is a value statement. The second is the strategies that will be coming before the commission later this year, which Chipper Manny will further elaborate later in the presentation. There are five principles guiding staff to take a comprehensive approach to how port manages trees, forests, and habitat restoration for the long-term health and benefits, starting with inventory and assessment as a foundation for implementing stewardship measures consistently while reflecting site-specific needs. The second principle is to maximize opportunities to increase trees, forests, and other habitat by prioritizing opportunities in or adjacent to existing continuous trees, forests, and other habitat to achieve benefits to the community, fish, and wildlife. Third principle is to apply an equity and environmental justice lens to, uh, by prioritizing trees and forest stewardship opportunities for areas identified by the equity index as in the greatest need to consider historical and cultural values of the site and to consider the impact to communities. The fourth principle is to continue supporting community partnerships and leveraging intergovernmental coordination to further our collective environmental stewardship impacts in communities near port facilities, such as the South King County Community Impact Fund, which has, ha which has been hugely successful in supporting community-led environmental initiatives. 
Green Cities partnership with the cities of SeaTac, Des Moines, and Burien for development of stewardship plans for restoring and maintaining forested parks and open spaces in their respective jurisdictions. And the Miller Creek uh, project partnership with the city of Burien, which is moving forward with port's contribution of land and funds for fish, fish passage and stream restoration. And the last principle is a holistic approach to stewardship to actively steward trees, forests, and other habitat to ensure long-term viability in preserving resources, including removal of invasive species, protecting existing high-value resources, and exploring and prioritizing protection of trees over removal and replacement whenever possible. Next slide, please. And I will turn it over to Chipper Manning to further elaborate. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, commissioners, and thank you, Director Metric. Uh, I'm going to speak to the strategies that are uh, included in the environmental land stewardship order. Uh, the port implements numerous existing programs to manage natural resources that protect and enhance trees, forests, and other habitat. These existing programs broadly include goals of meeting or exceeding minimum environmental regulatory requirements, implementing programs in support of the port century agenda and sustainability policies, and supporting community benefits initiatives through grant programs and public engagement. Through these existing programs, SEA has restored almost 200 acres of habitat since 2006, including clearing invasives at those sites um, and planting almost 30,000 trees and almost a half a million native understory plantings. Uh, meanwhile, in the past five years, Maritime Division has planted more than 8,300 8, trees in its existing parks and restoration sites. Uh, the environmental land stewardship principles will be formally integrated into those existing programs to further enhance mm -hmm. outcomes. And in addition, this order before you today uh, identifies four new and additional strategies that will ensure land stewardship is comprehensively integrated into port planning, development, and operations consistent with the priorities identified in the principles. For the first strategy, SEA will adopt a land stewardship plan. Uh, that informs the responsible stewardship of its land in the face of ongoing operational and development activities. The land stewardship plan will establish specific objectives and goals for implementing land stewardship practices. It will provide an inventory of trees, forests, and other habitat uh, in order to establish bench benchmarks and enable tracking over time. Uh, it will create site management plans to identify specific stewardship opportunities including those to mitigate SEA operational and development impacts uh, as identified through the State Environmental Policy Act review and consistent with other federal, state, and local permitting regimes. Lastly, the plan will prioritize sites for active stewardship using criteria for existing conditions, planned site use, and newly available environmental equity attributes, including the port's equity index, the urban heat island index, and public accessibility indicators. Uh, for our second strategy, the port will adopt new standards at SEA requiring operations and development projects to replace any trees that they clear. Currently, the port does not have development standards regulating tree removal in SEA jurisdiction. Adopting these standards will bring tree removal at SCA into alignment with existing tree replacement standards administered uh, at the city level by SeaTac, Burien, and Des Moines, as well as the city of Seattle. 
the land stewardship plan will support the tree replacement actions by providing planning level information for use by projects uh, to the, identify the extent of potential impacts of their projects as well as identify potential ecological sites where uh, that may receive replacement trees. Uh, the third strategy recommended by the order before you today uh, is to recognize that the Maritime Division already manages a mix of aquatic and shoreline resources uh, with a large proportion of habitats other than forest. Uh, Maritime currently implements manifold programs protecting and enhancing those resources, uh, including annual habitat site maintenance, sustainable shorelines program, and the multi-site bank mitigation uh, business line. Uh, therefore, Maritime intends to implement a strategy to ensure that these existing programs fully integrate opportunities to increase tree canopy and forested habitat. Uh, the fourth strategy listed in the order today is that staff will integrate land stewardship principles into the sustainable evaluation frameworks, habitat and restoration component for capital development projects. This strategy applies port-wide and will allow early recognition of project potential to impact natural resources, including trees, as well as identify opportunities to steward those resources sustainably and to integrate consideration of equity and community benefits into project planning and design. Uh, lastly, the integration of within the SEF will uh, allow us to identify actions additional to tree and forest stewardship that support project sustainability, including, for example, creating other habitats such as wetlands or pollinator meadows. Uh, thank you for listening to us, and Eric and I, along with our leadership team, are happy to answer any questions there may be regarding the environmental land stewardship principles and strategies. All right, thank you so much, Erica and Chipper, for that presentation. Chipper, I gotta admit, it throws me a little off to not see you in boots and jeans and in the. <laughs> I, I, my image of you is like, you know, getting down dirty in the ground, so uh, you clean up well. Um, we'll begin with, the with Commissioner Hazegawa for any questions for staff at this time or any comments. Commissioner Hazegawa. Well, thank you very much, President Cho. This has been in the works now for over a year, and to see it come to this is, um, I think, really exciting and kind of emotional also for a lot of the people who are in the room right now because behind this project was a lot of passion and so I just want to open by thanking director Kilroy and her entire shop and the environmental team um, in particular I'd like to thank and acknowledge Chipper for your subject matter expertise lending us your um, your passion all of your effort over the last over a year in this process um, Erica Chung from the Commission office uh, for your thought partnership, uh, Commissioner Fellerman for being um, the, the passionate driver that he always is, and my uh, co-chair co over at the uh, Sustainability, Environment, and Climate Committee. And I'd also like to acknowledge our communications department uh, for their support throughout this process, helping, helping us tell the stories of why our lands and our trees and our waters are so important and why land stewardship is so important. Truly trees offer us so much. They clean our air, they offset rising temperatures, they offer recreational space that's good for community members' mental health, they provide critical habitat for native flora and fauna, and they're just simply beautiful. They give us so much. 
and environmental justice is a recognition <clears throat> that race and history does play a role in the way that people and our community members are experiencing climate change. It's an acknowledgement that people of color and poorer people, working class people, are often hit first and hardest by crises. As a commissioner, it's always been at the core of the work that I do here at the Port of Seattle, and this order is an important step in codifying all of our shared values when it comes to land stewardship. This order asserts that the port will actively seek opportunities to expand canopy and connect trees and forests. And if expanding trees on a property isn't possible, then the very next order of business is to both consider and prioritize opportunities on other port property to contribute to environmental and community benefits. It instruments the port's equity index to identify and prioritize areas with the greatest need for stewardship actions. And I'd also like to mention that this order was developed with community input in the process. And I often say that inequity work is not just what we do, but how we do it. So I'd like to also acknowledge the members of the public who took time out of their day to join us and be able to review this as subject matter experts and stakeholders on this body of work. I am very proud of this land stewardship principles order, which is a value statement of how we're going to be stewarding our natural resources. Um, to my colleagues, I'll say that your vote of approval is an assertion that the port values pairing economic de development with an intentional strategy to promote both sustainability and community health. Please join me in passing this order. Thank you everybody so much for the work that's gone into to this moment. Awesome. Thank you so much, Commissioner Hazagawa. Are there any other additional commissioner questions or comments? Commissioner Fellman. I'd like to acknowledge an appreciation for support for the leadership that Commissioner Hasegawa had in taking this long process on and I was simply a reviewer more than a, a leader on this so I do greatly appreciate that leadership that you exhibited and Chipper I do very much appreciate the expertise that you bring to the port without even this guidance and the environmental staff that are supporting us to really be good stewards of the environment so that's greatly appreciated and as I have to always joke, your name seems to make you pre-qualified pre for the job. So, um, I, I, and, but I would, I would like to um, address one question I had about the, the policy that um, it, it says that we will apply to, uh, local jurisdictions, uh, we, will, we will comply with local jurisdictions in setting our tree book placement policy. And that's the law, right? We, we don't really have a choice with that. And is, is, is this only to address the um, few pieces of property that somehow are outside of local jurisdictions or is there, is this to achieve some other additional layer and I'm not sure why we wouldn't just be declaring this as setting a floor and having an aspiration beyond that. But could you identify what kind of properties actually, I don't understand how we have properties that don't exist within the county or the city I mean. The land stewardship principles and associated uh, policy goals apply to all port holdings and projects. Um, so the integration of land stewardship principles through project planning and design and the sustainability evaluation framework apply to all port projects. Now within, within that overarching policy, the port is also required to meet specific regulatory standards. Those regulatory standards 
can vary depending on the city in which the project is being applied. So I would say that it's both. We apply, we apply our project to all projects, and all those projects in turn are not, uh, still remain uh, required to meet all the environmental regulations that are administered by the cities in which the projects occur. Thank you, but isn't it true though that there are some properties the port owns within cities that are not currently subject to this? And could you help me understand this? All, all properties owned by the port are subject to environmental uh, regulations that apply. I think you may be speaking specifically to tree replacement requirements. Yes. Uh, one of the strategies and the principles is to adopt tree replacement requirements for SCA jurisdiction. So as defined by the SeaTac interlocal agreement, there is an area at the airport called the airport activity area uh, in which the airport actually has building and permitting jurisdiction. So the city standards, uh, the SeaTac city standards do not apply um, in that area. The port building department mm -hmm. standards do. Those standards currently do not have tree replacement uh, requirements and so that is the strategy that the airport is taking. It's to implement the tree replacement standards for that specific jurisdiction. I knew there was some loophole we were trying to fill there, so thank you for, <laughs> it's a loophole. Thank you yes. for clarifying that for me. And, and there's, there's nothing in this that precludes us to exceed this. This is, sets a floor, right? It's a, it's a legal obligation, other than fixing that hole, to comply with the tree replacement policy. But we say in this that we can exceed without, you know, that's, the goal isn't to comply. The goal is to at least comply with going above, right? That's correct. The regulations that we set would be a minimum, a minimum requirement that we'd, be, uh, that we'd be required to achieve. I think the exceedance comes uh, in the context that we intend for our tree replacement standards to meet or exceed the minimum requirements of the cities. So generally, the cities would have a three-to-one tree replacement requirement for, for trees cleared for development. Uh, the port is going to propose a four-to-one replacement standard. So in that way, we are actually would be exceeding the minimum city standards uh, as applied to airport property. That's great. great. Can I, that's, thank you for that clarification. So, and then there's another provision in there talking about interagency collaboration. And we know, certainly with my experience with the Air Flight Safety Corridor program, where we've had uh, a lot of tree replacement issues, but with the WashDOT's 509 expansion, there's a significant amount of tree cutting, and, and it's something like 10,000 trees, and that they are going to replace that with some 62,000 trees. I think it's uh, 10,000 trees up to 62,700 trees. So that's, you know, quite a bit more than what we've been talking about. I, I was asking before about how um, we interact with that, or do we only ask WashDOT to be involved when we're doing the ac action? So, you know, WashDOT is essentially its own jurisdiction and has its own roadside policy manual that specifies their own re unique requirements for tree replacement for their projects and their rights of way. So those standards apply independent of um, uh, city standards in which that, when, in which those projects may apply. So yes, the the port does not have a direct stake in decision making related to wash dots clearing and replacement of, of trees. They do it according to their specific roadside policy manual. 
Um, where we do engage with WashDOT, you're correct, is for example, for flight corridor safety program, um, which uh, that program ensures safe flight operations by removing obstructions, uh, forgive me for putting it directly, but removing obstructions that planes might crash into. Uh, so really important from a safety consideration to remove those instructions to ensure safe operations at uh, the airport. Some of those, some of the tree clearing that was required to ensure safe flight operations occurred on uh, properties owned by folks other than the port, including uh, WashDOT. So as part of that process, we coordinated and collaborated with WashDOT to accomplish the mitigation of the tree obstructions on their property and complied with WashDOT specific reg regulations and requirements uh, that are uh, specific to their operating jurisdiction. Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for taking the time to explain all that to us. And it certainly seems that this sort of acknowledgement definitely uh, provides further fodder for protecting North Sea Type Park. Thank you again. You're Great, thank you. Any other com comments or questions? Uh, Commissioner Calkins, we'll go with Calkins first, sorry. Thank you, Chipper. Uh, I love that our resident arborist is named Chipper. It reminds me of uh, my vet's name is Barry Katz, which is really macabre, but true. Um, so, uh, the question I had for you is uh, around the distinction between tree planting and tree stewardship. And I raise this because I think a lot of the emerging science around a couple of well-intended but not well-executed environmental initiatives recently really stem from this idea that the sort of trillion trees idea that if we just plant a trillion trees we're going to sequester all that carbon and everything will be hunky-dory and in fact when you start to dig into the science you realize that first off when you plant a trillion trees you're getting monoculture which is not good for ecosystems and furthermore if you only plant them and then don't steward them they're not going to thrive and so I'm really hoping that what you know what I'm seeing here extraordinary work from you all in the committee is that, it, in fact, it's a stewardship plan about ecosystem development, not just putting a bunch of dogwoods out in a field somewhere and calling it good. Um, and it, uh, the other part of this, I think, is uh, to just recommend to everyone listening uh, to read the, the, the book The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is a kind of fictionalized retelling of the life's work of a, of a tree scientist, uh, Suzanne Simmert, who has developed uh, research around how trees participate, uh, not as single entities, but as an organism, sort of like, you know, uh, a body that is just a kidney is not really functioning, but it's the collective of all of the organs in an ecosystem that um, that really make it thrive. And I, I see that reflected here in this uh, principles of stewardship and ecosystem development, not simply let's uh, plant a few trees. So if you wanted to go into a little bit of uh, that kind of um, that broader view of how we support ecosystems rather than just planting trees, that would be great. Uh, that's a great point, Commissioner. Thank you for that comment and, and the question. I think as you see uh, in the future, the land stewardship plan come before you for adoption, as well as the tree replacement standards that we're proposing, you'll see that theme uh, integrated into those into those products. It's about more than just replacing uh, trees with it. It's about more than just planting trees. We really do want to take a landscape scale approach uh, to the way we're, we're managing our natural resources and that begins with the inventory. Uh, the inventory is conducted on a landscape scale. We're looking at broad scale patterns in land cover and habitat 
and then supplementing that with site-specific um, assessments and evaluations. And so one of the main ways that that comes out in the land stewardship planning is through this idea of uh, goal and the goal of expanding and connecting contiguous habitat. Um, we've mapped contiguous habitat at the airport um, and at Maritime and um, <clears throat> at the airport specifically, which has a different, a little bit of a different um, environment than, than Maritime. That contiguous, contiguous habitat tends to occur along our stream and riparian corridors. Now, that's helpful for us because most of those corridors uh, are highly regulated because they include aquatic resources regulated under the Clean Water Act. So there's an opportunity there for us to uh, use that, those regulated stream and wetland areas as a base for this approach where we're looking to expand and connect habitat farther into the upland areas. So that's just one example of how we're taking a landscape scale approach uh, to look at providing um, ecosystem services rather in addition to just tree canopy. Thank you, Jeff. Great. And then Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you for the time. I just wanted to express my deep gratitude to everyone who was involved in um, bringing this item forward today. I really appreciate it. I want to give a special thank you to um, Commission Vice President Hasegawa for your leadership. I know you've worked so hard on this and we've engaged in a number of conversations about this issue and um, your commitment to making sure that you brought something forward that was collaborative, thoughtful, and insightful. And um, this truly is that. And I just want to say thank you for your leadership on that. And uh, thank you to uh, Commissioner Fellman as well for the work that you've done on that as part of that committee. Um, this document to me really provides clear guidance and demonstrates um, our commitment to prioritizing tree protection. Um, it really outlines our intention and um, really show it's actionable, right? It's not just um, here's, here's our values, here's why we care about this thing, but it also includes why we're doing this and how we intend to do this and also a plan for reporting back. And I think that is important. Um, I was sharing with Commissioner Hasegawa that recently actually that I had uh, co-hosted a town hall with Congressman Adam Smith and this specific issue came up. We were talking about North SeaTac Park and uh, a number of the constituents out there were raising their concerns and ultimately what they talked about was our broader goal around trees. How do we intend to steward, do good stewardship of, um, of trees and protect them? And Commissioner Hasegawa had said to me, we, we have an order that's coming and I can't wait to, to bring it to the floor. And um, it is exactly on point with what our constituents were looking for. It's very actionable. And so I just um, want to thank um, the entire environmental team's leadership on this, um, the commission staff who've worked on this, and also um, my colleagues for, for bringing this forward. It's really great. Um, I do have one question. I wanted to know um, the quarter four reporting, how do we, for, for uh, the public's interest, how should we expect to get that information back? Is that gonna happen during a commission meeting? Um, I think it'd be helpful for the public to know what they should expect on that report back. And the section that I'm talking about is the um, aviation land stewardship plan. Um, there's a quarter, quarter four is when we should expect a report back. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. 
And will that be in public session? Uh, I, I believe that the approach is to have the land stewardship plan formally adopted by the commission as part of a public session. Yes. Beautiful. Thank if you. I may, if I may comment on that, Commissioner, actually we're going to adopt it as a policy. So a formal commission policy will be have an introduction and an adoption and time for public input. And so this will be a very robust uh, type of policy. Uh, so commission will have another chance to weigh in and see a more formalized process. This really kicks us off into that by providing a decision matrix and then we'll come with those sort of intricate policy related matters in the fall. For the benefit of the public, that's really helpful for them to be able to track some of that timeline and, and share their comments as well. Again, thank you all for your leadership on this item and I'm looking forward to supporting it today. Great, and Commissioner Hazagawa with the last word. I think that um, our Chief of Staff Aaron Pritchard and Commissioner Mohammed summarized it very well, but I just wanted to make crystal clear that the order calls for there to be a policy to be subsequently implemented and that policy will also provide opportunities for public input. Um, so this is our decision making matrix and then we'll get into the nitty gritty of how the rubber actually meets the road. Excellent and I'll just close by saying and echoing the sentiments of my colleagues. Uh, thank you so much Commissioner Hazagawa for your leadership on this. A longly awaited and anticipated uh, document, but it, I think good things always take time and I'm really, really happy with what we have in front of us and I'm looking forward to voting in favor of it. So with that, hearing no further questions for this item, is there a motion and a second? So moved, Mr. President. Second. Excellent, second. the motion has been made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for, uh, for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Thank you, beginning with Commissioner Hoskawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent. The motion passes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chipper. Thank you, Erica. Good work. <coughs> All right. Moving to item 11, presentations and staff reports. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record, and Executive Director uh, Metric will then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 11A, Maritime Blue Annual Report. Commissioners, four years ago, the Port of Seattle executed a memorandum of understanding with Washington, Mar with Washington Maritime Blue, a nonprofit organization charged with implementing Washington State's strategy for the blue economy. Our partnership is making great strides in advancing development of the Washington's blue economy. Over the past few years, we have jointly launched a successful Maritime Innovation Accelerator, expanded the Youth Maritime Collaborative Workforce Development Initiative, advanced underwater noise reduction to protect southern resident killer whales, and made progress on other efforts to promote sustainability within the maritime industry. Uh, Dave McFadden, our Managing Director for Economic Development Division, will introduce the briefing in our guest presenters. And we also have Joshua Berger, a Maritime Blue uh, CEO here. And I don't know if he's the only speaker we have, Dave. So I'll turn it over to you, Dave yes, McFadden. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll run some traffic here. Yeah. <laughs> Good afternoon, Commissioners. Good afternoon, Executive Director Metric. I'm very pleased to be here today. This is a, one of our favorite topics to share with you, just the progress that Maritime Blue is making. The partnership has been tremendous so far and we've made a ton of progress. I reflect back warmly, when I first met Joshua, we didn't have a statewide uh, maritime sustainability plan. We had not created Maritime Blue. There, this was all a vision. 
None of it had hit the ground yet. And over the last five years, we have now built a new accelerator program. We'd advanced maritime workforce development in ways that we couldn't even imagine in a very effective way. And we've launched effective projects like Quiet Sound. And there's more to come. So it's my pleasure to turn it over to Joshua Berger, our president and CEO of Maritime Blue. It's been really great to work with you, Joshua, and we look forward to your updates today. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Thank you, and Commissioners. I think we're going to get uh, probably to the third slide, and you have to ask them to advance. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Perfect. We'll start right there. Uh, thank you, Commissioners. Uh, afternoon, Executive Director Metric, uh, and all staff that we've been engaging with and, and supported by and, and supporting for yeah a number of years. I think um, it was just about a year ago we were here last uh, directly and giving our annual report. It feels like so much has happened in the last year. At the same time, it feels like a blink of an eye. Uh, there's a lot of work happening uh, together and around us in so many different avenues. I'm going to keep it pretty high level this year. We have uh, our, uh, our leadership team online, and they're going to be available. I'll go through some quick slides and updates, and then they'll be available online for uh, for myself and for them to answer some specific questions. I know you all have um, uh, specific questions yourselves and we can, we can follow those lines as we go. Uh, so I'll run through a couple of slides here. Um, as you can see, this, this, is, the, this is the underscore of uh, all that Maritime Blue is doing in terms of our strategic focus. It really helps outline those strategic areas in which we do our work whether it is incubating a brand new startup company or helping some of the largest maritime OEMs in the world think about how they're gonna demonstrate and utilize new technology and engage across the public-private sector. Uh, we're working in these different number of areas. Um, we do it through this cluster model. As, we, as we've said over and over again, we believe strongly that if we're going to accelerate innovation sustainability and equity to the degree in which we need in the short amount of time that we need it, we have to be working collaboratively. And it's a very intentional intersection between private industry, research institutions, our government and public partners, and community-based organizations. And we have to do that work together. Next slide. We do that, again, in these four distinct areas. And we'll go through them in a little bit more detail. I'll provide some highlights from this last year as well as what we're thinking for this next year. Uh, this is timely for us as well because our fiscal year has just started as well. We're aligned with the state's fiscal year. Our Blue Ventures programs is all working with startups. Our joint innovation programs is how we're working collectively and collaboratively across new markets, specific problem sets and new demonstrations. Our equity engagement team is working tirelessly and connecting a more diverse and equitable and inclusive career pathway. And our Blue Hub uh, scope of work is really about being that connector across businesses to businesses and business to governments and communities to businesses. It's both literal and figurative. And we'll go through that. Next slide, please. So our Blue Ventures program, these are uh, each of the startups that we have worked with now over the last uh, four plus years in various different programs. And it's everything, again, from you know, seafood snacks to all-electric outboards to digital drainage truck solutions across the blue economy in those five strategic areas. Next slide. We now have these very distinct programs. It's really intentional that we support innovation 
at, uh, across the entire spectrum of where innovation happens from startups, that's from the early ideation on the back of a napkin to fully commercialized and scaling. Uh, we have the incubator in Tacoma that has been running uh, for the last two cohorts. It's a 12-month based program. And we'll talk more about the Seattle Incubator, which is about to kick off here shortly. The One Ocean Accelerator is our new program. We just kicked off that first uh, cohort this year, inviting later stage international startups looking for a soft landing into the U.S. market. Our ability to utilize our whole cluster of partners to be that soft landing and nest for those folks has been really uh, uh, an exciting new program. And of course, the Marquee Maritime Blue Innovation Accelerator with a key support and driver from the Port of Seattle and get that running. Next slide, please. I'll, I'll share some of the distinctions that we've had this year. Um, uh, the distinctions this year in the, as we're separating out those programs, we talked about this last year, is so that we're catching startups at the right phases. Rather than, when we first started this, it was, could you imagine a maritime or ocean startup? Like, what would that look like in Seattle four years ago? Now, we are part of a global network of maritime incubators and accelerators, and we're leading globally in that work. We want to make sure we have the right programs at the right stage for folks. Some folks who are ready for venture capital and can scale to that degree. Others that are not looking for that or not appropriate for that, but really need to be part of the ecosystem. Uh, so we have those separate programs now set up to do that. Um, so last year we kicked off this accelerator. We had the completion of the last fourth wave of that accelerator program. What was distinct about that is these are all venture scale companies now, working hard to drive them towards venture capital investment to see really scaled growth through those companies. And we are initiating the new Seattle incubator. We're about to make the decisions in the first five to eight companies to start that incubator who will be housed for 12 months at Fisherman's Terminal at the Maritime Blue Hub and uh, get that same level of support from the breadth of our cluster in lots of ways. Ahead, uh, we use the term, I realize we use the term, we're gonna close the Blue Innovation Fund. Um, uh, in uh, in investment uh, speak, that means we're going to start the Blue Innovation Fund, close the round of funding. So we're in the process now of raising an early stage investment fund. We talked about that last year. That, that was sort of a, a glimmer in our eye. We were getting closer. We now have the mechanism to do it. We have the managing partners in place to do that. Uh, and we're raising that fund right now to actually invest in those companies that come through the accelerator and maybe even beyond. The second cohort of the One Ocean Accelerator will be coming this fall and we'll be kicking off that Seattle Incubator program. Next slide. Wanted to touch just a little bit on this fund. Uh, this is a critical component for us in lots of different ways. We know uh, that there is a funding gap for particularly early stage uh, maritime ocean and fisheries companies. We know that because we've been working to help get those 35 companies investment for the last five years. Now it is growing. The amount of funds out there, institutional capital across Europe, Asia, and here in the U.S. is growing dramatically. There's still a gap. Uh, we want to be able to help meet that gap, lead larger syndicates for those companies that we're working with closely, uh, as well as organizationally that provides uh, unrestricted funds back to organization to keep this programming sustainable over the long term. We're excited about our partnership. The other person is not up in this slide. So Brock Mansfield, longtime venture uh, capital in the impact environmental space is our managing partner, along with Jean-Noël Poirier, who uh, has a also 25-year background in uh, clean energy ventures that's helping us raise and manage this fund going forward. Next slide. 
So the Blue Hub, literal and figurative, this is our home here down at Fisherman's Terminal. Uh, we have 6,000 square feet down there where we have a number of subtenants that are working collaboratively with us. It's like WeWorks for uh, CoLab and WeWorks for Maritime Blue members and partners. Any given day we're having a high-level event with a minister or ambassador uh, or a workshop among our members to talk about clean fuels. Uh, or our members just need to stop by because they need a place to work while they're in town for a couple of days. So it gives our members access to meeting rooms, boardrooms, and collaborative working space. Next slide. And of course, this is, we call it our interim space for now, uh, all leading up to uh, the eventuality of moving this whole operation into the new Maritime Innovation Center as that's ready. Uh, I know you've all seen the renderings of the external part of the building. You can hit the next slide, maybe two. What's notable now, you hit one more click. We have also 100% design of the interior, the tenant improvements, which would uh, be Maritime Blue's responsibility uh, as we uh, intend to be the prime uh, tenant as well as subleasing out to some of, those, uh, some of our members and operating the incubators and accelerator programs and workforce programs in that space and then being able to host large-scale events that are tied directly to Maritime Blue's work. Uh, classroom space, boardroom space, and the like. So we're super excited. Everything's in place. We're all 100% design and looking forward to uh, from, from our offices in the central building of Fisherman's Terminal watching the peak of that building move from one end of the parking lot to the other and uh, becoming the most incredible living building in the world to do this work. Next slide. So our joint innovation programs are all focused around this collaborative model for moving work forward. Sometimes we're leading and administering, sometimes we're participating and bringing certain stakeholders to the table of that work. Uh, of course, you know the Quiet Sound program. I got a detailed slide and give you some updates of that. That has become the model for uh, more at work in these uh, burgeoning new markets and, op and opportunity and problem sets all at the same time. We've found such success in the last two years of this really working model with structured leadership committees and working groups to move the ball forward through collaboration that we're utilizing the same model to stand up the new Maritime Blue Wind Collaborative that's focused on uh, understanding and activating the offshore wind supply chain for the West Coast of the United States through that same collaborative uh, and research model. Uh, we are participating in the Pacific Northwest Hydrogen Hub that was really came out of our work to convene maritime port and logistics stakeholders and future of fuels and being able to bring that level of collaboration to the larger hydrogen hub discussion and we're all optimistic about our region's chances to be able to bring significant federal dollars to activate all parts of that uh, and then participating with you all in the green shipping uh, corridor conversation both in terms of cruise uh, as well as that to Asia and so we are really trying to ensure that the uh, local stakeholders, the local infrastructure and system is uh, participating and being part of those larger pre-feasibility studies as they go forward. Next slide. I'll give you a little bit uh, more and I know you all uh, have heard recently from Rachel Aronson who's the director of the Quiet Sound program uh, and the incredible work that she and the team and the leadership committee have been doing. Uh, we've seen just really incredible success with the first ever slowdown in Washington waters, significant participation, and measured noise reduction. 
the increase of usage of the whale report alert system, uh, bringing more and more support, certainly from our state legislature and stakeholders and partners abound. Uh, ahead, they're, they're planning now for the second year of the slowdown, what that looks like in terms of increased monitoring and expanded outreach, um, uh, looking to invest in more noise sensing capacity, uh, how we start to blend this work now out to other modes like tugs and fast ferries and what does that look like, what are the technologies necessary, what work are we doing. Uh, we're also working closely with the U.S. Coast Guard and their new uh, whale desk. Uh, that has been congressionally mandated and trying to figure out to make sure they have the resources and the connections to make that whale desk uh, a success in notifying commercial mariners of uh, real-time reporting of marine mammals and our endangered species in particular. Next slide. The Blue Wind uh, Collaborative here structurally is modeled closely after the Quiet Sound model because of the great success and level of participation. Uh, and ability to deploy budget to go get stuff done. Uh, and we find it a real important working model. Uh, as you all know, and we've talked about a number of times in lots of different forums, the opportunity for our region uh, to participate, if not lead in lots of ways in the supply chain that will support uh, offshore wind development of the West Coast of the United States, uh, the amount of assets, capabilities, workforce, research and design, engineering, just plain operational know-how from companies like Foss and Crowley that are here. Uh, there's a significant role for uh, our uh, labor partners and uh, designers and research institutions to play, sort of agnostic to where blades may spin. Uh, so this is, a, this is a process really specific to the supply chain here in Washington State, understanding it, convening it, doing the studies that are necessary, making sure that all studies that are happening have sort of a similar scope and lens so that there is a one-stop shop for folks who are talking about or interested in or looking to develop that supply chain here. And we can talk more details about that as it comes. Next slide. You can see the framework here, again, modeled closely after the, the Quiet Sound program with an active working leadership committee and working groups where the work really gets done. And whether it's a, a vessel capacity and gap analysis study, we know that at least 100 new vessels are need to, need to be built for this uh, new supply chain, whether it's the workforce components that are gonna be necessary and what those training needs and uh, gaps are, will all be done in these working groups. Uh, by the uh, different folks participating at different levels. Next slide. Our equity engagement team, and you've heard again recently from, the, from them, <clears throat> they won't go into too much detail. <coughs> uh, Vis Nahoy, our director, is here as well to answer questions. Um, we're continuing the programming, our Youth Maritime Accelerator Project, convening Youth Maritime Collaborative, uh, and we are thrilled to now start to kick off the first cohort of a Youth Maritime Career Launch Program. And that is a new program uh, that you all put forward here last year. We're grateful recipients of being one of the teams uh, putting that program into place. We're in the final recruitment phase of that, both uh, for youth and employers, pairing them, providing wraparound services for youth and employers, including DEI training and cultural competency uh, for employers so that we're retaining uh, the interns that we put in uh, to the workforce. Uh, and that first cohort will kick off this fall. And it'll be the first of the next three years of the Youth Maritime Career Launch Program that we're ex really excited to be running. Next slide. I guess I just want to share that, <clears throat> uh, again, uh, we're not doing this alone. 
And I, I, I often say how important it is that we recognize and share that there is one ocean uh, and there is one blue economy. And so we are on any given day this morning, I was on with Portugal yesterday, we were on with Iceland. Uh, the day before we were on uh, with Japan. Of folks that there are opportunities for investment, for technology sharing, just sharing best practices. Uh, we, are, we are intimately connected uh, across this one ocean and working very deliberately and intentionally in lots of different forums, uh, including uh, the One Ocean Startup Coalition, uh, which is working with a whole number of these uh, essentially ecosystem builders like Maritime Blue as a cluster and incubator and accelerator around the globe. So we have common metrics, common capital pathways and the like together. Next slide. Operationally, we are a young and fast growing organization. I feel like I am learning from our startup uh, activity with those founders as much as any of the founders that are coming through our programs. Uh, we are growing rapidly. Uh, we are scaling and we are managing growth all the time. Um, it's not easy sometimes. Uh, we operate, as you see on the next slide, where our, uh, where our budget and revenue cycles come from, or this is the growth of, uh, we'll go through the next, this is, this is our famous uh, uh, logo farm, of the growing membership. Uh, and, and to that point, sort of the growing membership and the, the growing needs of our members and partners are saying, Maritime Blue, makes the most sense for this here to be led. This program we need to stand up so we can be most effective in, in this goal and this mission. Um, but to do that, we are, and you can go to the next slide, we are always balancing um, where, the, where uh, our revenues are coming from in order to do that work. And you can see that we have been uh, largely supported by public dollars. Our in, we are increasing that amount from our private partners, private foundations, our membership and sponsorship in that work year after year. Uh, but being an organization that mostly works in reimbursable dollars, we need to have staff in order to get programs going, in order to get paid for programs. Uh, and that as a fast growing organization is uh, the challenge of our time. Uh, in order to do that, we are investing right now in that infrastructure to have uh, better capability to do that and to grow in the sophistication that we need to scale. I'll say the last four years, in many ways, we've been proving the value of an innovation cluster organization, what it does, how it works, and how it works for this ecosystem and this community. I feel strongly we've done that for as much as we're growing and work that we're doing and being successful with. Now we need the infrastructure to scale to be at the next level to be sustainable. And we're working hard on that uh, with multiple different uh, funding and revenue partners and having the infrastructure uh, on, our, on our inside to be able to manage that growth. I think that might end it there. Maybe there's one more slide that, that shares uh, my team. Yeah. Um, uh, this is the most incredible group of humans I've ever had the chance to work with. And, um, uh, in, in such a mission, uh, entrepreneurial and, uh, and deep background that these folks are bringing to it. Uh, we had an intern who's interning with our Quiet Sound program through our own um, Youth Maritime Accelerator uh, come to our staff meeting. We're introducing our new interns. Uh, and Marquise asked us, he said, um, uh, uh, how have you changed since you've started here at Maritime Blue? And asked us all individually, to totally caught us off guard. We all had this really sort of um, incredible moment of reflection. We have staff meetings and times for reflection quite often, but this caught us off guard. And it just reminded each of us sort of at a critical moment um, 
Uh, we're here for multiple reasons. The mission and the work uh, is important uh, and it's timely and it needs to be done well and, and fast. Uh, at the same time, we're building an organization that models the values of the blue economy as we've defined it. And that's not easy either. We're paying good wages. We're, we're offering uh, the right benefits and time off. We're uh, pathways for growth and inclusion. Uh, and our team is so committed to that collectively uh, that it's, uh, it's a remarkable place to be. And so I'm super proud and honored and privileged to have this team working with us. I think that's it for um, our overview slides. We wanted to let you all dive in uh, to your questions and thoughts. We do have our team on. I think we, they can be invited to turn on their cameras uh, and uh, you can ask questions of, uh, of us directly or individually and we'd love to engage. Thank Great. You. Thank you so much, Joshua and uh, Dave uh, for those, that presentation. I'll open it up to comments and questions from commissioners at this time. Please let me know if you would like to speak. Commissioner Hasegawa. I lowered my chair and I don't know how to get it back up again. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I didn't come off mute just to say that publicly. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I wanted to thank Joshua for coming back and bringing the entire team with you to give us the good update and um, seeing the new number of partners that are on the screen, um, seeing the amazing progress that the organization's <laughs> been able to make um, has really been just a privilege to be able to behold over the course of time of me as, as a commissioner. And uh, I just wanted to really acknowledge the amazing work and leadership that you do. Um, and um, and really just reassert uh, what committed supporters you have in all of us um, here at the Port of Seattle. I am wondering if you have a little bit of an update about any of the grant applications, the federal grant application that we made to the sort of finalist round, if you could give us any insights to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. There's been a couple this year. Um, as you all know, we were awarded phase one awards of what's the, from the Economic Development Administration Build Back Better program. Uh, we were right on the edge when they gave us the ranking, right at the edge of not being awarded phase two dollars. Uh, what we did in the first year with the planning dollars we had uh, from that Build Back Better program was pretty remarkable though. The coalition that was built around a number of different items, whether it was uh, future of fuels and hydrogen development, those projects continued to thrive and get funded and grow. Uh, the connections um, and, and much of that work as I was alluding to uh, helped set the basis for port and maritime uh, um, uh, inclusion in the Pacific Northwest Hydrogen Hub as that was getting developed uh, with our partners at CHARGE, um, the Consortium for Hydrogen and Renewable CHARGE. Uh, acronyms sometimes get tough uh, uh, and all of our partners uh, that has led into that. So the level of coordination and coalition building that happened across clusters and across the sector with that was significant and continues, those projects continue to move on and grow. Uh, we are in the process as well as uh, applying now for what would be our second round of the build back, um, uh, sort of the build to scale program through EDA. Uh, so the Port of Seattle was a matching partner uh, to our Build to Scale award that we're now just completing with EDA and now eligible for the next round. 
those are critical operational dollars and, and program dollars for us to continue to grow and scale. And that application is going to be filed here in the next couple of weeks. We're feeling uh, quite optimistic and competitive in that grant. We've been very successful in the first round uh, and have been a model program and our programs and success have been modeled by EDA. Uh, so we're feeling pretty competitive for that going forward. There's a number of other federal opportunities that are coming that we're in line for. We were uh, supported by Senator Cantwell to continue to grow the Quiet Sound program. Uh, and then a uh, bill is just hitting the floor called the Ocean ROI Act, which is intended to um, set a really strong funding foundation for ocean-based cluster organizations. And Maritime Blue is highlighted as the model organization uh, in uh, that act that's uh, been dropped by Senator Murkowski and Cantwell uh, and uh, Congresswoman Pingree on the East Coast. My second question is, I'm wondering if um, within your operation you have a policy shop or if you've identified any common themes or issues that um, require advocacy on any level of government? Yeah. So we're pretty distinctly not a policy organization. There, a lot of our work uh, uh, has, or some of our work has, we see going forward there's likely to be more uh, policy review and policy that are making sense to, in order to advance certain markets or certain innovations or technologies we feel we need to get to. But our organization is not, we're a 501c3, so we're very limited and not lobbying. We'll partner with other organizations. We'll sort of set stage for work that uh, many of our partners and members will then take forward. Uh, but distinctly, we're not a sort of policy organization. Yeah. Excellent. Any others? Commissioner Mohammed? I echo those same sentiments. I always love when we get to hear your annual report and all the amazing work that you're doing. And I just, I, I love this page. <laughs> like everybody else, it's um, amazing. Oh, you guys got to see my little notes on the side. Um, it, it's it's um, the, the framework that you guys model around collaboration is really incredible by bringing together the industry partners, community groups, um, as well as the public sector. I think it's, um, it's great work that you all are, are, are doing and just to see this, this picture grow is, is, is awesome. Um, I, I had a question around your educational programs. Do you guys track the folks who graduate from your program and if they then later on land in the industry? Is there a system in place for that? I've heard that um, the state's employment department, if somebody opts in, could be tracked in that kind of way. Is that something you guys are doing? Mm -hmm. um, yes, but I'm going to let uh, Visna, who's their director of the ec ec uh, equity engagement team, answer if that's okay. Yeah. Sure. Good afternoon, everyone. Bisna um, Hoy, Director of Equity Engagement. Hope you can hear me okay. Um, so thank you for that question, Commissioner Muhammad. Yes, we are definitely tracking data of um, all of our youth participants um, because we do want to foster their journey towards a education or career in maritime. Um, we have been implementing internships for a couple of years now and we're super excited for this upcoming fall internship that Joshua touched on, um, which is the three-month internship program. Um, thankfully to the Ports Investment um, in, in, in BIPOC youth and underrepresented youth. Um, so we will continue to track that data 
to um, see who has started um, within our high school programs, which we offer throughout the year, um, who's then continued on to our eight-week internship program with the Youth Maritime Accelerator Project, which is taking place right now. Um, and that's an internship for 18 to 24. So have finished high school um, and now exploring um, options after high school and um, before going off to college or trade school. And then this very new uh, year one implementation um, of the YMCL uh, Youth Maritime Career Launch Program, we are working closely with employers so that our goal after the three-month internship program is that our interns do get placed in a permanent livable wage job. And we, we certainly focus on um, making sure that we are being inclusive and accessible to youth who are most um, farthest away from opportunities and who need that additional support and mentorship um, because they haven't had the awareness or access um, historically. Thank you, Vista. Thank that. That's yeah. I, I wanted to hear how that that tracking was happening, and so that's that's helpful. Um, to know that you guys are beginning to um, do some of that work. Um, does the state provide you with any information or is that like the students just have to opt in to that? Are you communicating with the state's employment department to do that? I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah, we, sorry, go ahead, Joshua. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Yeah, we have not been partnering with any state agency to collect that data or to maintain that data. It is really opt-in information um, and students complete a application which has um, questions about demographical background. Thank you. Were you going to add something to that or were you just going to say that? No. That's Same thing. Great. Okay. Yeah. That thank concludes you. my <laughs> questions and again, thank you all for the great work that you continue to do. Great. Thank you so much, Commissioner Calkins. Thank you, Joshua, for the presentation and, and uh, for everybody joining us virtually. I've had a chance to work individually with most of you, I think, and uh, I'm always just incredibly impressed with the caliber of folks who make up the team. And I think a part of that is because of the mission. You've attracted amazing people because you're a great leader, but also because you're driving towards a mission that I think uh, provides a real sense of meaning for the folks who work there. And that's really what I wanted to talk about, which is fundamentally you are one of the most powerful climate action agencies in the state. Uh, we know that climate action will happen in, on, and around the oceans, and that's essentially what your mission is. And I'm extremely proud of what the Port of Seattle did to, to be a, you know, a starter motor for this effort. That's a terrible analogy. <laughs> talking about Not a starter motor. A uh, what? A, a, a Gallant. Gallant. Yes. <laughs> Um, a renewable fuels uh, starter motor, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it, I, and, and I think that's really fundamental for people to understand about the cluster model that, that you really embody for the whole state, which is you're taking the intellectual capacity of our research and academic institutions. You're taking the ability of governments to set the rules of the road and then adding into that the entrepreneurial and capital resources of the of industry and in, in the business community and none of those entities alone can do it they all have to be brought to the table and there is such power in that and we see it in the the work that's already happening in quiet sound which is not really you know there's not a revenue model behind that but when you look at some of your other joint innovation projects you start to see these are things that will catalyze enormous amounts of 
careers for our community. And so, uh, you know, to, to see a successful program like this and, and to really be able to sell it on, that we must do this for climate action and Washington is going to be a leader because we, we got out ahead. We're going to be a leader in this new green economy or the blue economy in this case. That's really exciting for me. So um, thanks for the briefing. It's always really fun to hear about the stuff. I feel like every time I sit down with you, I learn about some new amazing thing you guys are working on. I love the renderings of the, of the, of the building. I can't wait to walk in it someday. But mm -hmm. thanks, Joshua. Yeah, thank Great, Mr. Commissioner Feldman. Thanks for the presentation, Joshua. I'm always impressed by how your program continues to expand the logos, but most important, how you continue to remember all these names and <laughs> acronyms. It's quite impressive, actually. And keeping track of that, I'm give you just a don't great, ask me my kids. Names. Great kudos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember just in terms of one of the challenges of keeping the funding going was I think it was the last meeting I attended as a mm -hmm. ex officio board member was. Um, you had this great speaker from Europe someplace that was like the guru of accelerators mm -hmm. um, who basically said, um, when you were basically asking him, how do you sustain funding for programs mm -hmm. like this? And, and he said something like, well, they're designed to sort of get going and go on to the next one. It was sort of, uh, he, he, he really said it was a great challenge to be mm -hmm. able to sustain funding for that. Mm -hmm. Each one was sort of like its own project and had to have its own resources, yeah. which was, and I said, you know, you just have to charge a lot of overhead. And then trying to, you know, get something back as part of yeah. that funding. Yeah. Clearly your effort to create a, a, a fund, a, mm -hmm. a investment. $20 million exercise is going to help address that. But, you know, as of right now, is, is it true? Like, I, I see local contracts, mm -hmm. you have um, this 31.5%. Mm -hmm. That's primarily the port? It's the port other ports, um, cities, municipalities, uh, yeah, primarily that's where those local contracts fit into that revenue line item. It'd be good to yeah. see our name in there. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but the, the idea, though, that um, there's a strategy, yeah. obviously, yeah. you have to come yeah. up with to try yeah. to, because the innovation projects are yeah. really brilliant mm -hmm. to try to mm -hmm. jumpstart this. It's just, yeah. what is the model that can sustain that? Yeah, yeah. We're working on that every day. I think we, we, have, some, we have some good approaches in where we are. Uh, we, I think we, as, as I said, we've spent the first four years sort of proving out the, the value and being able to quantify the ROI for our corporate members. And uh, the investment fund is one way in which we can do that, and these specific market initiatives are another way to be able to do that, right? So if they have the ability to help understand the scope, help influence what needs to be reported on, looked at, understood for the next level, then they see some immediate ROI in that work. Um, our corporate partners, particularly our local uh, uh, maritime partners, they're worrying about making sure that their boats and docks and infrastructure are working every day, uh, and yet they know they need to be on the front end of innovation if they're gonna survive and grow, but they don't have their own capacity to do that. And so we're being seen sort of as, you know, their uh, their corporate VC opportunity, right, uh, to be able to do that. So we're now we're sort of, we're now at the point where we are sort of proving the ROI and I think we'll also generate the, the private investment that's gonna be necessary to continue to sustain as well. So our private companies are there every day and engaging uh, and on the front lines of it and uh, um, we'll grow with them. I got a couple more. Can you just pick it one more, please? So, um, all right, well then, 
I'll talk to you about the Kraken later. <laughs> so, um, and our first slide, is that really an interior picture of the Innovation Center, or is that a rendering on the first slide? Oh, that's a, a rendering, but it's 100% uh, design, yeah. All right, so I'll get over those. It's so not in yet. terms of, the, I know that this blue wind is, is one of your newer exercises, yeah. and, I, I, and I see you say, you know, supply chain focus, and this is something the entire organization is very much behind, and Seaport Alliance as well. The, um, the concern I always have is this, us weighing in on locations mm -hmm. for doing the actual projects. I don't think the expertise is in this capacity to do that sort of work. Um, but I do see now the governor has a formal goal for offshore wind in Washington State. And uh, was 30 megawatts or something, there was, uh, I heard him say it. Hmm. And so, um, so uh, and I'm just you know wondering in terms of, because yeah. I, I, I watch the WICMIC meetings, the Washington mm -hmm. Coastal, WICMAC. Marine, whatever. And you know, so I'm listening to what, what's going on there and that there is an effort to engage them in this conversation and I see you have in this engagement process, you're including fishing in North and the Indian Fish Commission, and these are folks that are not really supply chain related folks as much as they are kind of community impacted folks on for that sort of consideration. So I'm, I'm just, you know, big supporter. I think mm -hmm. it's impossible for California and Oregon to handle all the demand that's coming their yeah. way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I also think, and I'm watching how BOEM is doing their business elsewhere. And that I really think there's a tremendous amount of lessons we can learn before they get here. And so there are only questions we don't even know to ask yet, but I'm learning from some of these things. And I, I really am hoping that this is a long-term process. It'll get up the coast, but uh, I'm very concerned about advocating for something we really don't know as much about as I would feel comfortable with. Yeah. I think those are really valid concerns, and those are concerns that need to be addressed when we start thinking about uh, siting specifically in Washington. We're making a very clear distinction that this process is about how we're going to understand and activate the supply chain to support development that's already planned in California and starting to move its way up the coast. Washington may be the last place where blades actually spin, and I think that there is a real need to have a very deliberate and intentional conversation about just that and how that happens. This is not that form. However, we are structuring the form in the same collaborative model that we do uh, with Quiet Sound and all of our other projects and programs to help set a table that is inclusive of all communities who may be impacted by or from or impacting offshore wind, you know, supply chain, which could also include fisheries, different, you know, every tribe is different, and so every tribe is a different sort of take and opportunity and concern around offshore wind. The hope here is that by talking about supply chain through an equitable community benefits lens, that we are building at least some early trust and relationships across the very different communities who also have the same questions and concerns that you do. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I would just want to echo the sentiments of my colleagues that you know, uh, I you know that this program, uh, the the machine that you've built, Joshua, is is really one of a kind and and, and is doing some really uh, innovative work. Uh, I, I personally appreciate it because I feel like you are always pushing the boundaries of what we call public-private partnerships, and I think one of the biggest examples of that is the the, the new Blue Innovation Fund that you included in your deck. Uh, to partner with venture capital uh, funds um, to the, you know not only just provide 
um, mentorship to startups, but also like real capital to startups is, is something that I don't think a government agency has really, or at least on a local level, uh, been successful at uh, very much. And it's something that I think you're uh, really, you're, you're on the cusp of something really big here. Um, you know, regarding that, I would love for you to kind of explain to us and the public exactly what the role uh, Maritime Blue plays and what uh, Maritime Blue stands to, how, how Maritime Blue stands to benefit from being that uh, s s connector between the VC world and, uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 and the startups. Yeah, yeah. So maybe help to sort of back up again. Maritime Blue spun out of a state agency, so there was a statewide process. Maritime Blue then was formed as an independent 501c3 organization that was supported in large part by the State Department of Commerce and the Port of Seattle and many others, but it is an independent 501c3. And we've been sort of, I would say, growing in our independence uh, uh, over those last five years, uh, uh, not just sort of structurally and, and, and literally, but as an independent organization with many different stakeholders and partners and funders. Uh, so uh, structurally, Maritime Blue has set up a, a parallel foundation that will end up being the co-general partner or co-GP in a fund with Meliorate Partners, uh, which is the long-term VC fund. And then Maritime Blue Foundation then uh, enjoys uh, half of the management fee and carry from whatever that investment fund uh, gets in return. And then those dollars come back to Washington Maritime Blue uh, as sources of revenue to keep our programming going and sustainable over time. Uh, so collectively, Mar the Maritime Blue and Meliorate Partners are engaging with uh, limited partners and investors uh, around the globe from Austria, Japan, Iceland, Norway, LA, New York, San Francisco uh, to uh, finalize the, the, this first investment round of the fund. Is, is Maritime Blue contributing to the fund? No, we're putting it in the sweat equity. We run the accelerator that supports all of it. So essentially, we, we're putting in the sweat equity for half of, of the returns of the fund. And the carry is 2 and 20? What, what is the carry? We're st so I would say that's the general idea. We're still working out the details of what that fund looks like, but it's pretty typical 2 and 20 fund is where we're landing. Very cool. But that's not, that's not, uh, that's not inked in, uh, in contract yet. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Joshua. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, to all the Maritime Blue staff who are online, I appreciate you. Oh, I see Joshua's on the line, I'm sure. He could have <laughs> answered my questions as well. Uh, excellent. We'll uh, move on in the agenda. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. Executive Director Metric will then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 11B, Equitable Spending and Accountability Project Briefing. Commissioners, the port is committed to being a model for equity, diversity, and inclusion. And one way is is to one way to be accountable for this work is to show where our dollars are going. Uh, as included in the equity policy directive approved by the commission earlier this year, port staff has created a definition of equity spending calculated that spending over the last several years and created a pilot project for tracking equity spending going forward. And we're excited to share the results of that effort with you today. And I'll have to say that this is really a groundbreaking effort because the definition of equity within spending itself is not defined and that was part of the process of doing this. But the staff has really worked hard on, on, uh, on the direction from the commission to undertake this effort in order to do this, in order to create uh, 
um, a way of reporting and accounting for our spending uh, as part of part of our contributions to the community, which is which is not just through our spending, but uh, through our results as well. So I'm going to turn over to our presenters, Bukta Gesar, the Senior Director of the Office of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion. Uh, I think we also have Dan Thomas, our Chief Financial Officer, and uh, Michael Tong, I think, is available as well. And then we have Eric Schinfeld, um, uh, acting deputy chief, uh, acting chief of staff. Eric, sorry to give you a demotion there. Well, I've been trying to get road. a demotion for nine months yeah. now, but we'll, we'll see if that happens. Uh, good no, afternoon. No, no such luck, Eric. So yes. we'll turn it over. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Eric Schinfeld, uh, acting chief of staff for as long as you'll have me. Uh, uh, really pleased to be here with you today to talk about some amazing work that has been truly the effort of a cast of thousands throughout the port and we're, we're incredibly excited not only that we've achieved this work but what the potential impacts long term will be of doing this work. Uh, I'm actually going to call a slight audible so if you can move ahead two slides I want to start uh, on the third slide and then we'll go back. So uh, this all stems from the equity policy directive that was passed earlier this year. Uh, among the many things that were in the equity policy directive was this very specific guidance, which really asked us to look at, uh, first of all, as Executive Director Metric said, developing a definition for equity-related resources, and then calculating, based on that definition, how much we have spent, and then looking forward, how we use that definition and use those categories to then guide our future investments. So that's what we've been doing since uh, the beginning of the year, and that's what we're here to present on you uh, today. Now, go back a slide here. I want to talk about the three main reasons that we're, we're doing this project. Uh, and please, uh, let me tell you that the quality of the work is much better than the acronym development. Uh, but we are calling this the ESAP as uh, the best we could do. Uh, we didn't have money for branding. So uh, you know, the, there's a number of reasons why we, we think this work is really important. And of course, the, the basic is put your money where your mouth is, right? Uh, we talk about our commitment to equity. We, we have a commitment to equity. But uh, a budget is a moral document, as we say all the time. And we need to make sure that we are spending the money uh, where we say we want to spend it to achieve the results we want to achieve it. Uh, that's the accountability piece. But the transparency piece is just as important, which was uh, when we spend that money, it's really important for the community to understand that and for us to be able to tell that story about what we're spending, uh, what we're doing with those dollars, and how we think those dollars are having an impact in the community. Uh, and of course, the innovation piece is like I, like I said, and like Executive Director Metric said, no one has ever done this before. And, and Director Kesar went around, talked to public agencies locally, nationally. How do you measure equity spend? No one had a, an idea. So we've done this ourselves. Uh, it may not be perfect, but we're really proud of the result. And we think it's something that uh, not only can we continue to use, but we're really excited to potentially take the show on the road and encourage other people to adopt this approach. Next slide and the slide after that. Uh, so we're going to get into the weeds here on exactly what we did, and let me start by talking about what we did not do. Uh, we, when we wanted to start our definition of equity spending, we wanted to be a, as conservative as possible. Uh, it would be very easy for us to say, well, we're all committed to equity, so everything we do is equity. Uh, and I don't think that would have really uh, passed the smell test. And, and so instead, we, we took a really, really focused look at 
what is equity? Uh, first of all, we really focused on operating costs. Uh, so what is our annual operating budget? Uh, capital uh, also has some equity components, but those numbers are so big, it's really hard to track them and they vary year to year. So we really want to focus on operating, not only because those, those numbers are more direct, but also because those are the dollars that you as commissioners have most control over. Those are the levers that you pull as part of the annual budget process. And so this is how you might make tweaks in the future. Uh, we excluded our WIMBY spending uh, from our final percentage. And, and let me just say, obviously, our, our, our WIMBY spending is equity spending. Uh, but that, again, is money that we don't directly budget, right? We certainly try, and we've got great staff who are out there trying to get WIMBYs to apply and successfully get some of these contracts. But that's not you don't budget a WIMBY spend. That's a result of, of the work that we do. So we did include that in the core number as well. Uh, we did identify uh, levy dollars. We thought that was important to understand what's part of our sort of annual operating budget that we generate from our, our regular revenues versus what comes from the levy, because those are public dollars and that have a, a different level of accountability for those. And finally, we struggled with this issue around staff time. Uh, again, uh, all of us at the port all day, every day think about equity. Uh, we do. Uh, but uh, we did not want to say that everybody's staff time counts as equity spending. It doesn't. Uh, and also, we wanted to save ourselves quite a headache by going through everybody's timesheet every day for the year and tracking who spoke at what conference for two hours and who served on what panel. Uh, we just can't do that. And so we only are tracking staff uh, costs that are staff who do equity for all of their job. Everybody who works in OEDI, everybody who works in diversity and contracting. Uh, folks like, for example, Christina Billingsley and the amazing work that she does all day, every day uh, in the Duwamish. So those are the folks we did count some staff time, not everyone's staff time. And I do want to say that there was some sensitivity to this. We are certainly not trying to devalue anyone's commitment to equity, anyone's work, the work that people, for example, do on uh, the change team. Uh, this is really to try and have a, a really usable definition that is easily uh, trackable and, and accountable. So uh, that's where we are, and I'll turn things over to Dr. Khaizar to uh, actually go into how we did this. Thank you, Eric. Um, next slide, please. So, uh, so no, back. sorry, one back. Great. So part of the complexity of our work was also that we were doing an audit of the last four years of spending. Um, and that actually made it challenging for us to, you know, go back to, through a lot of records. And that's why it really helped, for example, to narrow down the port staff time. Um, so we landed on this three definitions. Uh, to invest directly in ex structurally excluded communities. Some examples of this are South King County Fund or the tourism grants. Um, the second definition of investing in businesses and individuals outside of the port to help realize our equity goals. Some examples of this are uh, some of the work in that uh, Economic Development uh, Division does in partnering with WIMBY capacity building grants or ground transportation capacity building, you know, efforts. So there were, there were a lot of consultants and organizations that were engaged in helping build, to build our equity uh, programming and capacities number two, uh, under two that really fit into the Excel spreadsheet. And third, as, as Eric said, we really identified the port staff whose work was primarily equity focused. So based on these three definitions, next slide please, 
We then developed this criteria to help us then even narrow and focus more on equity. I'll give a couple of examples of how we applied the, the criteria to the definition. Um, we, uh, for example, the park renaming efforts, all of the expenses that went into the outreach, community building, community organizing, we looked at these seven, six criterias, and we said what efforts were specifically targeted and intended to improve the lives of BIPOC communities. And through that, we were able to narrow down. So for example, we don't include all of tourism grants, but tourism grants that are specifically driven to, um, towards BIPOC communities or targeting, uh, for example, Wing Luke Museum dollars we counted, but some of the dollars in tourism were, that were not targeted for BIPOC communities we did not include. Um, so you'll see that um, not only in the Excel spreadsheet that is in your materials, we have listed all of the 70 items that finally we included as equity spending. And um, that was really done by looking at the definition and making sure that at least one of the criteria is applied. Next slide, please. This is just a picture of the Excel spreadsheet that is actually included in your materials. We, once we had the definition and the criteria, we then interviewed a lot of program staff across the organization. Tony Van, Eric Schoenfeld, and myself interviewed people and asked, you know, what do you feel like fits into these definitions and criterias? And we began to identify the items. And then um, Dan Thomas and, and his team really poured over kind of the last four years of auditing the expenses that were associated to these items. And we began to really populate this Excel spreadsheet and identify all of the expenses for the last four years. Next slide, please. And I think I'm turning it over to you, Dan, here. Thank you, Brooke. So this table shows a summary. Sorry. So this table shows a summary of the results of the spending analysis for each of the past four years. Uh, so as you can see, <clears throat> over that time period, operating expenses it grew from about 458 million to 491 million. And then if you look at the amount of equity spending uh, that fits the criteria that Bukta talked about, that also increased from about $8.7 million in 2019 to $13.8 million in 2022. And then calculating the percentage of each of those, the percentage of equity spending of the total operating expense, you can see that grew also from 1.9% back in 2019 uh, to just under 3% in 2022. And then looking at the uh, amount that was funded with the tax levy, I will apologize that bottom left, bottom left label is actually uh, incorrect. It should say percent funded by the tax levy. Um, so if you're looking at the, the amount that was funded out of the tax levy, that ranged from about 22% up to just under 41% uh, over this period. That makes sense. So next slide, please. So this just shows it in, in graphic form. It looks at the percent that was funded by the levy as well as the percent of equity spending uh, compared to operating expense. Um, and again, this was without the uh, WMBE uh, included the numbers per, per the recommendation. And next slide, please. Um, so since we, not, we haven't been including WMBE spending, we did want to show you, at least on a relative basis, what that actually looks like. 
So this compares, and this is a cumulative number. This is over the past four years cumulatively, uh, looking at the uh, equity spending expenses that we've been tracking per those uh, criteria, but also uh, adds in the WMBE investments cumulatively, cumulatively over the past four years. Because as you can see, it's significantly more spent on, on WMBE investments. So I think the idea, and then maybe Eric wants to comment on that, that's a real opportunity, we think. Well, just one clarification, Commissioner. So uh, when we talk about WIMBY investments, we are talking about dollars that actually go to WIMBY firms. Uh, the dollars that we spend, for example, outreach programs and the staff in, in diversity and contracting, those are included in our operating numbers. So this is just what we're excluding is just the money that actually gets paid to the firms themselves. I think it's back to you. Just one note that I wanted to make about, would you go two slides back, please, to the one that had the levy spending? The, you might be thinking about, you know, why from 22% to 40% in one year. The two items in 2020 and 2021 that made a big difference was the Youth Opportunity Initiative that in one year, because of COVID and economic recovery efforts, we funded $1 million in per year in those two years for summer uh, uh, youth employment programs that really made those numbers jump up. And now, as you know, through the Maritime Youth uh, Career Launch, we're spreading those dollars more over the years. But those are the two uh, programs that made a really big jump uh, where I wanted to point out. So couple, two slides forward, please. One more. All right, just some next steps are that we are now, as the policy directive is uh, directing us, to develop the, the pilot for the next two years programs. Uh, we have developed a pilot that we're gonna share a little bit with you here and launching it in the organization, tracking equity spending and continuing to report back to you on an annual basis. I'm probably in the equity committee more frequently than the annual. Next slide, please. Oh, I, I just wanted to add also that um, we have, I think it's in your materials that we've developed a dashboard with the support of business intelligence that has all of this materials beautifully laid out. We're, we're needing to make a couple of final changes in it. Our recommendation is to make that available publicly on our website and to share it with other partners around the country, especially as you've just heard from Eric that this is such innovative work that we want to be able to share this with others um, and what we've learned from this process. Um, so we have finished the four years audit and we're going to now uh, teach this tool across the organization and ask divisions to track their spending. We're gonna continue to separate, separate operating from capital and non-operating expenses. We're going to also continue to separate WIMBY spending but not WIMBY capacity building as, as Eric mentioned. Um, next slide please. 
the um, Budget and Equity Committee has developed the, the pilot and we've launched a memo and playbook and guide across the organization with other budgeting materials that has been re released. So we're starting to launch this across the organization and teach people how to track equity spending. We will, uh, you're gonna see in a moment that we are not asking departments to track their spending, but we're asking divisions to track. And, but at the department level, we really want to operationalize the meaning of equity and budgeting. So we're helping people to continue to have a change team member that's engaged at the table and really thinking about their equity spending in the future years that are mostly around training of team members or, or uh, attending conferences. But we really found that most of the equity spending items really are most relevant at the division level for, for the people who do the budgeting for each divisions. So we'll be tracking mostly at the division. Next slide, please. Dan, do you want to go over it? Yeah, so again, I guess to put a finer, finer point on that, so what we're really doing is taking the equity spending tracking that we've been doing and identifying equity spending and, uh, and putting it together and rolling it up and looking at uh, what percentage that makes up of our operating budget and really merging that with our budget process. So that then going forward, we will just roll that forward and as part of the budget process, uh, ask uh, departments and divisions to identify their, uh, their equity spending, and then we'll have a process for rolling that all up so we can report to the commission in the fall when we present our budget uh, what the equity spending amounts are. We'll be able to look at it on a port-wide basis as a percentage. So we are shifting some of that responsibility to the divisions to really be responsible <clears throat> as part of their own processes to uh, gather up and identify the equity spending within their uh, divisions. And then for each division, they will report out to you as part of the budget process uh, their equity, equity spending and provide some summary information, a little bit about their thought process and how they went through that, what additional things they've been adding. Um, so this, this is a, a sort of an excerpt from our, our, our uh, playbook or what we're uh, proposing to do on our budget guidelines. So again, on the left really defines what the operating divisions will be responsible for. They'll have some questions they'll need to address, but again, they'll be responsible for identifying the spending and rolling it up. And then, but for individual departments uh, at the, uh, basically at the grassroots level, they'll still have some questions to answer. We're still gonna ask them to uh, provide some uh, information about how they're thinking about equity from the, when they do their budgets also whether they feel they're uh, get, getting enough training or identify other issues. So they'll still play a role, but really the reporting will be more at the division level. And then we'll also be coordinating within the central services groups uh, to also be, be able to report out on equity spending uh, for those, also for those departments. So these are just some examples of the, the process that we've outlined uh, that'll be part of the equity um, playbook and budget guidelines. And I think the next slide is our last slide. You, I know you're familiar with our budgeting timeline and process, but this is just uh, the, the equity process will be aligned here. And again, as you heard, divisions will be presenting to you their equity spending in their budget presentations. 
thank you, Commissioner Mohammed and Commissioner Cho, for this idea. I thought it was terrifying <laughs> to go and figure out what our equity spending is. I did not think that we could figure it out, and I think we've done an incredible job. I want to thank the finance and budgeting team who've been so incredibly forward-thinking and innovative in this process. And, and Tony Van and Eric Schinfeld for being a constant partner in this work. Um, I think we've accomplished a lot, um, and it's really exciting. I think what we found, and I think the process can uh, unfold and become uh, and, and develop more because I think we could. Uh, I can see that in the coming years we might be able to define our equity impact further and to look at the cost and the impact and be able to really unfold this further. But I think it's a great beginning for our work and we look forward to also finding ways that the equity index can, can work with this and kind of manifest where our investments are in, the, in King County, in South King County especially, and to kind of also report back on our equity spending. So there are a lot of different ways that I think this work can grow into the future. But thank you for this assignment. Uh, I, it's really helped us. I think all of us had to have a lot of deeper conversations. And I know that in the last year's commission retreat, you brought up like, what would it be look like if we had a mandate of 1% spending, like the art policy? And I think it's really exciting to see that we're much further than 1%. Um, and I hope that you can f uh, use this as a tool in your own thinking about uh, your budget asks and, and also support all of our divisions to continue to grow our equity spending. So thank you, and I think we're here to answer your, any questions you might have. Excellent. Thank you so much both to Eric and Bukta and your teams and to Dan for all the work you guys did on this uh, frightening experiment and research project. But I think uh, you know, we're all better for it. I'm going to go ahead and open it up for commissioners for questions or comments. I'll start with Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you, President Cho. Um, I also want to thank you all for the work that you did to um, bring this information to us. For me, it was important to um, request this type of accounting and to be able to see the breakdown of where we are investing. Um, a lot of the times, we can be in positions, especially I think for folks in leadership, um, to want to throw money at certain problems without really realizing where the needs are greatest. And um, what I really loved the most about you, your all's framework and thinking was um, being conservative around um, what information would be useful here because we really did want to gather data and information that would be useful to us and that we weren't doing things like you know, accounting as much as we would love to say everyone is doing equity work and that, you know, moves us every single day, um, which might be very true. Um, at the same time, we have to be really um, thoughtful in how we are measuring that so that we could really understand where, where some of those needs are and that we're not being seen as greenwashing or saying that, you know, we've, we're giving so much money to South King County communities because we have this, this program. And so I, I did uh, just want to acknowledge that and uh, appreciate that that framework that you put around this, um, as well as um, for for the the staff hours, right? I I think limiting that was important. Um, this calculation will be really helpful in us figuring out, especially right now in the, in, a, in a budget season, where do we invest our our time? 
Um, I, I did mention, you know, as, as I came here, I, I am always fascinated by the arts program and the idea of, of allocating specific dollars. Cities do it, and when you look at the, the history of how those art um, programs have been set up, that 1% was never something that people agreed on initially. There was a lot of pushback. You know, whether you look at historically from the city of Seattle, maybe the port and other agencies, it's never something that people want to do, have an actual line item for a specific program, right? Um, and I think it's, it was the same, right? It was frightening because, you know, it is worrisome to say let's line item something without really knowing where we are going. And I think we see that, you know, we have, we're doing a really great job. We've made a lot of investments. And I also do recognize that some of these investments that we are counting for are not permanent programs, right? These are programs that will run out. And I, that's not the case for the arts 1%. Um, program it is there and so I think it does give us an opportunity to decide where do we want to invest and how long do we want to make those investments for and I think we have the right information balanced information in front of us to be able to make those really informed decisions and the last thing I will say we are in an era where equity is under criticism both from the federal level local levels everybody is seems to, to criticize this work and um, you know, sometimes I am among those those critics, right, saying, well, well where, where, how are we breaking this down? How are we making the investments? And this is a new model. People don't have this, this model, right, in place. And I think what you guys have done is, is historical. Other jurisdictions can use this model to prove that we are investing where the needs are greatest and the investments are diverse. We're investing in things like environmental justice, cleanups, right? And we're investing in diverse communities who have been historically left been left out um, for, from government investments, and those folks come from all walks of life, but share the same sort of stories of being left out or not being included in in um, government fundings. And so, I think being able to measure this and show these accounts really um, pushes back on those critics and um, allows them to have use this information to actually sh to, to show that what we're doing is beyond what the small minds may be thinking and i just want to give deep gratitude to the uh, finance team for your thoughtfulness um, Dan director dan thomas your entire team Eric Tunney and Director Gazar uh, for being so open and to your team who've um, taken this idea on. And I hope, um, and Commissioner Cho and I <laughs> talked about this. Commissioner Cho too, who was frightened at one point, I was like, what are you, what's this one person that you're talking about? He has great ideas and it was great partnering with you and going back and forth on, on this. And um, I think we're at, at a good place to um, move forward. Thanks for the time. Excellent, for the record, I knew the entire time we were above 1%. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, any other <laughs> comments? Commissioner Calkins. A uh, couple of things. Um, you know, when we look at slide 10, uh, it's, and in fact, even the way we analyze um, in the previous slides where we take out the Wimby spend uh, because it swamps everything else. I mean, that says to me one thing is that is the single biggest lever we have to affect change. And in fact, that's I feel like what we hear most from our um, community partners, mm -hmm. you know, use our firms. That, allow, that allows us to sort of, um, all of the um, commensurate benefits 
expertise within community, um, the indirect jobs that are created, all those things are happening when we utilize external firms that fit into the 1B category. So on the one hand, that's really encouraging, um, and I think we should really lean into that and continue to try to figure out, right, it, this is inspiring for us as we deal with some of the really tricky issues, particularly around the airport, associated with that particular investment. and and. Um, in an area where we've had some success, but there's huge amounts of potential for more. It is also probably the area that is most structural versus individual, you know, where it's gonna take a change to the entire system to really um, continue to, to make progress. And it's also the most long-term, I think, versus uh, a quick fix that allows us to check a box and move on. And so to Commissioner Muhammad's point, we, this, these can't be one-off interventions. They have to be programs that persist. Um, and, um, and you know, I don't want to disparage the efforts we've done internally that have been very successful as well to, to create opportunities for folks who historically have not had those opportunities. Um, and then my other, you know, I keep bringing this up, Bukta, but um, we are in a changing regulatory environment around these things, and a lot of uh, what used to be sort of solid footing for us to work on, you know, uh, with our legal team to understand the, where we could venture with some of these things, are it's now untested. And we're, um, I guess I would say uh, we need to approach these questions of um, creating opportunity for those who historically have not. Um, had opportunities with a willingness to probe um, and maybe uh, take some risks in this environment where there isn't uh, the certainty that we may have had previously, um, and also a recognition that we may need to alter our strategy a little bit to accommodate these new uh, boundaries. So um, I, I know we have very smart people thinking about these questions all the time. Um, but I think uh, that's going to be a big part of our work, too, is to um, not always, um, for all of us not to, to um, accept no as the final answer. Excellent. Commissioner Fellman. Uh, I turn it off to speak. So uh, thank you for, I'd like to follow up on this point that the thing that we're excluding is the gorilla in the room. And, um, and, and so I was thinking that, you know, my analogy is when I look at vessel traffic in Puget Sound, you know, ferries are like this and everything else is like this. So you take ferries out and then you can see trends in vessel traffic, right? So, but it doesn't mean you don't look at ferries, right? So um, it's just on a different scale, right? So, the, um, so I, I'm kind of concerned that we don't throw this foundational thing out, which is really the structural issue for long-term success of this community that we are trying to facilitate. And I think, um, they may, I was just thinking about different ways of representing it. It could be a percent of total spend, right? So how does the, how does the percent change over time? And this is something that we could potentially be, um, our policies can help facilitate. And you know, the gorilla in the room is, the conversation, I've got two gorillas, uh, conversation in the room is um, about the update of the PLA, right? And uh, how much of an impediment is that for small businesses versus what's been going on? And I know I've been around long enough that this has swung back and forth over the years. And uh, 
certainly something that I've been hearing a lot about out there when you're in the trail. And, um, but, but that is something that, while there are these externalities that are precluding the equitable spend, um, there are some things that we have control over. So how it's represented and how, just you know, tracking it, whether or not it's something that we actually take direct action on or that we just see progress in the community is something that we should have visibility on. How you do that, good luck. But thank you so much for being able to give us something to follow. Commissioner Hazagawa. Thank you. <clears throat> I just um, want to acknowledge, I, I don't think we had a chance to be able to bring up the actual tool itself, um, but that it, it really is a phenomenal tool um, and that it takes into consideration that race and gender are also um, specific factors when considering equity and equity spend. Um, you know, I, um, I am so proud of this because we have to equip ourselves as a public entity with as many tools as possible to understand equity and inequities, um, particularly in a political climate where there are um, robust forces um, disbanding actions to be able to dismantle um, institutional racism. Um, and, um, and so I, I just really commend uh, everybody at, uh, among staff, and I'd also like to acknowledge our uh, former chairs of the Equity Workforce Development Committee for spearheading this work. Uh, it was, it all started with an idea um, to see it now actually be a tool, like a, a, that, a, a tangible tool that we can interact with is phenomenal. My question is, is when does that actually become public facing so that it's not just an internal resource, but uh, it's also a transparency measure as well? Soon, well, right? Yeah, well, uh, you know, a couple of pieces to that. As, as Brooklyn mentioned, we're working on the, on the dashboard. Uh, we really only have a few refinements, and we'll be able to have that um, hopefully live. And I think the idea is to have that available for the public as well. Um, also, as we get into our budgeting process this fall, that'll probably be the first big rollout for, for next year, for 2024, where you'll be able to see the equity spending and the percentage as part of that those budget presentations. Mm -hmm. And then we also would anticipate uh, a little bit to Commissioner Fellowman's question. Uh, probably a year-end, we would like to see, maybe as part of our, our year-end financial report, a, a section on equity spending where we pull it all together, where we show this element, we bring in the WIMBY, and, and there are other areas, too, where uh, funds are being spent that didn't quite qualify. But I know a lot of people, a lot of staff at the uh, at port felt kind of left out because they felt they were doing a lot of great equity efforts and whether it's in the environmental remediation has a lot of equity components and, and they wanted it to be included but for practical reasons we couldn't so I think we, we'd like to be able to think about how to put together a more comprehensive sort of year-end summary of all the different things that are going on all the all the spending that we're doing and all the areas that we're touching uh, as part of a more of a comprehensive year-end report thank you Great. And uh, it looks like Steve, uh, Executive Director Metric, you might have some comments as well. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that, and I thank commissioners, again, thank you for your leadership. Let me just add to this, too. When I walked out of the original meeting and saying, how are we going to do this? And, uh, and the staff said, I think we have some ideas, and we, we you know, moving forward with the definitions that we didn't have, and just, I just want to say, 
uh, thanks to all the staff, because I thought it would take us much longer in order to do this and figure this out. So this is really impressive work. So proud of the staff. And, uh, and thank you for, for the direction, and uh, especially Commissioner Mohammed, when we looked at this and undertook this, and all the commissioners for your leadership and saying that this is important to us. But I think also in adding to that picture that Dan's talking about, you know, we're also looking at the other part here that's even bigger than our capital is operating our gateways, which is, you know, what's the multiplier? We know that's billions of dollars to the economy. Cruise by itself is 900 million. Where do those benefits accrue? And so those analysis is another part of the whole picture that we're doing, and we should put that together. Because part of it is our spending, part of it is our you know, spending and then contracting within that, but then operating the gateways has a huge uh, effort itself, and we can guide those through, through actions of ourselves. So we'd like to put together, you know, through budgeting, now that we have these definitions, so we can move forward on some of these, we can expand it with, uh, um, sorry, Pete there. And, we can expand it with the, uh, the elements that Dan was talking about where they go, but then we can add this other piece, which is in the work that we're going to undertake, and it may take us a little while because these are not easy things to estimate to update our, uh, our impact um, studies, but those will add the whole picture of what we're doing and then how, not just the general economic impact, but where do those benefits accrue, and that will matter to the communities that we're talking about as well. That's the big picture of where I envision us going with all these pieces together. Excellent. All right, Aaron. Usually the executive director gets the last word. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I just want to throw a couple other alphabet soups in here that I think are worth considering along, if we're going to talk about WIMBY programs, which is something we run diversity and contracting out of the, the port. But we also have the disadvantaged business enterprise program, which are federal dollars that go into our construction. And we also have our ACDVE program, which is airport concessions, disadvantaged business enterprises. And those are also very large programs that have a lot of money at stake, where you can really drive money, where, where businesses can avail themselves of the services that the ports need. It's what happens with crews, it's what happens at airport concessions, it's what happens if federal uh, projects have federal construction dollars. And so those are other large levers that can really drive differences into communities. So I wanted to put those on the table as well as we consider how do we do oversight and figure out ways to do uh, uh, better for the port. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Aaron. Actually, I get the last word. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close by also uh, piling on. You know, I really appreciate this work, and I did truly believe from the beginning that we as an organization spent more than 1% on equity. Uh, I'm very happy to see that we've exceeded that even with a conservative approach to uh, how we uh, um, uh, assess our equity spend. You know, the reason I love this is not just because it, it, because it was much needed, but because our conclusion is not just based on conjecture, it's based on data and facts, right? And um, I think for me, um, you know, at least from what I've seen uh, externally to the port, uh, there might be sentiments out there that we as an organization have become too woke or have strayed from our core mission. But this just shows right here that we can walk and chew gum at the same time, that the, the work we do as an organization to promote equity within our communities is not mutually exclusive to promoting you know, a safe, uh, a functional gateway, right? And that, uh, that this validates what we knew all along, 
that uh, equity is just not one pillar in all that we do, but it's a pillar that goes horizontally and touches every single thing that we do, that we look at things through the lens of equity, um, and that uh, you know we can't look at it in, 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 a, in a vacuum. And so I really appreciate, um, uh, Steve, you being open to this uh, uncomfortable uh, exercise, to the staff, Eric, uh, Bukta, and Dan, for taking this on and really providing us with something that uh, is not just reassuring, but something that we can work off of and build upon going forward. Really looking forward to seeing the next steps that you outlined in the the, um, the PowerPoint presentation. Uh, and, and I think it's clear, uh, clear and safe to say that you have the commission's full support and continue to pursue uh, uh, thresholds and, and, and our goals on equity spend. So thank you so much for that again, uh, and uh, good work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioners. All right. So with that, that concludes our business meeting agenda for the day. Are there any closing comments at this time or motions relating to committee referrals from Commissioners? Commissioner Hazagawa. Yes, two comments. One is that I just wanted to acknowledge the, the recent decision by the Supreme Court mm. um, that uh, basically prohibited race as a consideration for entrance into college admissions. Mm -hmm. and. Um, that that is a slippery slope. It's a dangerous precedent which signals concerns for race being consideration across society. So I think that that's something that's really important for us to continue to follow and understand. I'm looking right at Pete Rammels, our legal chief legal counsel. Um, and um, and just I just want to communicate to um, those particularly in our, our Wimby um, department that uh, we're sensitive to the issue and we've got your back. The other thing is I'd like to take a point of personal privilege to acknowledge our most recent uh, hire here at the Port of Seattle. We have with us in the room today, intern Aviel Woldu, who is with the legal department. I actually had the privilege of working with Aviel when he was an undergraduate intern uh, with me in, um, in the communications and um, public engagement department at King County's Office of Law Enforcement Oversight. I got to watch him go on uh, to be an appointed member of the Community Advisory Committee on Law Enforcement Oversight, as well as um, an active member of the Martin Luther King Celebration and Commemorative Committee, um, where he has actually helped um, organize a small business opportunity fair over at Garfield High School year after year. I'm so proud of you, and it does me so well to see you right back here folded back in as a, as a member of the, as the Port family. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge you and give you a big, big warm shout out. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Commissioner Hazegawa, and welcome to the Port family. Any other comments? Nope. Uh, just in closing, let me just also uh, make a comment that um, to, you know, Steve uh, mentioned this earlier, but I did have the chance to go to the UNIMO last week and participate in the 80th MEPC plenary. And let me just say that um, I'm very encouraged to see that the member states adopted some ambitious goals in greenhouse gas emissions. There were moments where we were skeptical that they would re re reach a consensus. But one, one thing that was clear to me is that ports have a very clear role to play in the, the green transition and a just transition. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that we, the Steve and I and, and others agree on is that as an organization, we used to start, we have a local policy agenda, a state policy agenda, but Steve, I think you are, and I are on the same page that we should start to adopt international policy agendas and, and really embed ourselves into some of these conversations that are happening on a global level. The fact that we were invited to UN, uh, IMO, the fact that we were at COP27 last year, 
really just shows that we as an organization are rising up to the occasion and, and have a seat at the table in many ways. And so I'm very excited to see that continue for the rest of the year as well as going forward. And so thank you to all the staff who supported that trip, who made it possible, uh, and, and I'm looking forward to us engage in some future conversations, including potentially underwater noise uh, things that I think maybe Commissioner Fellman might be interested in engaging in going forward. So uh, I'll stop there. Yeah, Commissioner Fellman, real quick. I'd just like to acknowledge the uh, remarkable amount of work that's going on right now uh, regarding uh, offshore, not, well, not offshore, but uh, industrial lands policy that's uh, being viewed by the, be taken up by the state uh, next week. And uh, the city, you can tell it's getting late in the meeting. But, uh, you know, Sabrina and Mikkel have been just, you know, the whole Kathy and Pierce have been working very hard in uh, really continuing to try to advance the maritime industry's needs to have a working waterfront. You know, I said, if you don't have the property, you don't have a port. But it's a hard conversation to have. The commission has been fully engaged in this conversation, but it's really, you know, harkens back to the whole Soto debate. And uh, we lived through that one, too. And I just think, um, stay tuned, but it's really a all of organization effort and uh, one that is pretty foundational to who we are. So, Absolutely. so thank you for all your work. Thank you for calling that out. I was going to give you them their props after the work was done, but uh, yeah. I, 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 I echo those sentiments. <laughs> so, uh, Executive Director Metric, any last words from you before we close? Uh, no. Oh, no. excellent. President so Joel. hearing no further comments and having no further business, if there's no objection, we are adjourned at exactly 2.40 p.m. right on time. <laughs>